Hello mates, a pleasure to see you return. This is an interview with the author of one of the most incredible investigations into corruption, capital flight, and the extent of the pure degradation the offshore financial havens have upon the world. The guest's name is Jin Henry, and he is the author of Blood Bankers. I will give Jim a full bio momentarily, but first I wanted to introduce to you the theme of the podcast, of what we spoke about. There is a loosely accurate caricature of how business was conducted in the developing world during the 80s and onwards, formed by John Perkins's book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. The notion that a Western firm would fly into the developing world, Brazil's Amazon, the Philippines, Mexico, Guatemala, Kinshasa, Iran, etc., and he would then propose some overinflated infrastructure project or means of public spending that would greatly benefit the developing country. Finance would be exchanged, usually with the assistance of some public aid. A fancy engineering and construction firm would be flown in. The deal would have been delivered at 3x the budget, half its capacity, and any of the money that, that could have otherwise been filtered through the developing society was more often than not siphoned away to a few corrupt officials who inevitably then rerouted that money offshore. And so metaphorically, this giant amount of capital would come in and then just bounce off the surface of the country and then go straight back out again, rather than come in and then satiate the company as its supposed intention was. This would then leave the developing country with wasted time, energy, and usually loss of life as well. There's many examples in Blood Bankers that Jim Henry gives of these big infrastructure projects that utilized indigenous labor in Latin America to the point where many people would die from working. But ultimately, the loose caricature is that a few get very rich and then the rest are left with nothing. There is actually no development after all. But however, like I said, this is a caricature of an explanation for what is actually going on. What Jim Henry discovered through his investigation documented in Blood Bankers is, a dif is differing forms of the above story told through different lens of complexity all throughout the world. His investigation takes him all through Latin America, from Venezuela to Guatemala to Brazil to Nicaragua and then down to Argentina, and across the world to the Philippines documenting the infamous Marcos regime. In these different parts of the world, Jim discovers again and again corruption and capital flight where perennially a corrupt few manage to siphon billions of dollars in investment and aid just back to themselves, only to be rerouted into offshore accounts and lost in the impossible maze of financial secrecy. Imelda Marcos, who was the wife of the authoritarian leader for the Philippines during the 70s and 80s, to this day is rumored to have billions of dollars, which is rightly that of the Filipino people, stuffed and hidden away in some amoral bankers' hands. Blood Bankers is the investigation into the finance of all of this grubby business, a classic tale of following the money. This is coincidentally a great week to be releasing this podcast since it corresponds with the Pandora paper leak. Blood Bankers is as much an inquisition into corruption in the developing world as it is a microscope and one of the first books to highlight just how cancerous the, off, the world of offshore is on our planet. It is offshore that enables criminal organizations to scale to the heights that they do. Not firepower and not manpower, it is financial secrecy that allows this all to happen. And also as a quick aside, do subscribe to this podcast because later in this week I'm releasing a podcast with Nicholas Shackson. Uh, a man who was probably the world's leading journalist on financial secrecy and offshore. He did a podcast with me last week exclusively about the Pandora Papers. However, needless to say, Jim Henry is a remarkable man. I was so thrilled to speak with him. And despite technology trying its very best to stifle our correspondence, we managed to ultimately record almost four hours.
Jim is a Harvard-educated economist and lawyer, one of the famous NATO Raiders, a former chief economist at McKinsey, which for those who are unaware, has at times been one of the most powerful organizations in the world, an investigative journalist, author, and as you can imagine, much, much more as well. He's currently founder and managing director of the SAG Harbor Group, a consultancy for technology organizations. In this podcast, you can expect to hear about the following things. How Jim discovered President Nixon's offshore money, the early history of tax havens, operating as a chief economist at McKinsey during so much of the development crisis, his thoughts on confessions of an economic hitman, an example of the archetypal debt elephant, which is a hydro dam in Brazil whose damage is borderline unfathomable, implications of the underground economy, debt trap diplomacy, and really so much more as well. The conversation is not as structured and linear as I would have liked, but given Jim's erudition and experience, it's tough to stick to a timeline. I think after about 30 to 40 minutes, we really got the ball rolling. So have a look at the timestamps to navigate through the chat because the subject matter does jump around quite a bit. Personally, I think the last hour is my favorite, Um, but interspersed throughout the chat are some of the dramatic highlights that I tease in the introduction. Drama of Brazil, attempted kidnappings, and so forth. I want to corner the podcast for eclectic curiosities in whatever country it is you're listening in from. Based off the email correspondence, this podcast has so far attracted extremely brilliant, smart, but most importantly, curious people, and I feel honored to be in such good company. Discoverability within the podcast algorithms are extremely stone age. There is actually one variable that matters, and that is the amount of five-star reviews attached to a comment that your podcast has, and that is why so much crap can filter to the surface. So I please ask you that if you're keen as a bean and okay with supporting me, please do share this with a mate and pump your good juice into the algorithm. And the best way to pump your juice is with five stars attached to a review. I cannot overstate how helpful that would be to me. All right, and with all of that as context, I will leave you with one final message from Jim he sent to me in anticipation of the conversation. And as you will see, it really fired me up to speak with him. And it goes as follows. This is Jim. That goddamn white whale took me nearly two decades to research and finally get published. I spit out a Spanish version in 96 in two hellish weeks in Bogota. That version is 2x the English and has a Treasure Island's prequel on the pirate banking tax haven industry, which was still just taking off. It carried me to 30 countries, only a fraction of which are in the book. I nearly got killed. Bad guys, bad roads, bad food, multiple times researching it. I lost a marriage and nearly went bankrupt, got fired after years of labor by my original editor. They thought I had miserable sales, no reviews, found out someone had made digital copies that sold tens of thousands of that sold tens of thousands I never got a penny from. Many times I gave up on it and had some dedicated editor plus my own demons order me to finish the goddamn book. But I also had incredible investigative luck. I helped topple Noriega in Panama by finding three years of his drug deal phone records later used in his trial. Found President Nixon's offshore accounts in Nassau, was in Beijing during Tiananmen Square protests, and then in 1996, was in Moscow during Yeltsin's election steal. I penetrated the private banking offices of a top Swiss private bank and two top US banks, located the offshore accounts of Marcos and Carlos Andres Perez, got hired by Paraguay's AG to locate General Strosner's accounts in Miami, and found the Hamburg Bank where JP Morgan's senior vice president for Latin America stashed loot for top Brazilian officials, etc., 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 It's not a happy bragging tale. In many ways, I failed. If I had to do it all over again, I would have stayed in Minnesota and stuck with farming. 
Boohoo. Anyway, happy to talk about any of this. I never have. And with that, here is Jim Henry. Despite uh, the tech doing its absolute best efforts to uh, stifle and ruin this conversation, here we are. We found ourselves together on uh, Zoom. How are you? Good. Great to talk to you this morning. And uh, maybe the technical gods will be kinder if they've been fickle in the last few days. But uh, they have. I've been. I spent a lot of time in the software industry, so I know <laughs> the downside of of technology companies. Yeah, well, I mean, you could definitely maybe start to think that there is some grand conspiracy behind it, considering <laughs> the type of stuff we're going to be speaking about, because I haven't experienced these issues beforehand, which is such a shame. Um, but here we are. Uh, this is the second time we recorded, the first time on Saturday, uh, as we've alluded to, the tech failed us. So I was thinking of reintroducing as we did, and then guiding through the early years, getting up to the point where you've uh you're working on a manhattan wall street law firm so uh with your permission i'll start from there and we'll just kick it and roll it on sure that's great right and starting at the very beginning like we did on saturday to whom where and when were you born well i was born in minnesota minneapolis uh deep in the midwest um in 1950 and uh you know that was a kind of an interesting place to be at that period, it was uh, kind of a progressive state back then and uh, known for being uh, not only Democrats, but it had a, you know, communist governor in the 1930s. Um, uh, it had a lot of Norwegians and Swedes uh, who were, uh, had migrated um, and were kind of a progressive core and mm -hmm. a strong uh, farm community with, with rural electrical cooperatives and you know, great education systems and, uh, and, and no particular, uh, you know, ethnic uh, or racial uh, neuroses. I, I say partly because it was almost 99% uh, white. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, this kind of liberal tradition, I think, was important in Minnesota. It was also a tradition of uh, activism and citizenship. Uh, and, you know, my father was elected uh, to the school board and was active in local politics. He was a small town CPA, and, but he always, you know, had this idea of, of being a good citizen, you know, sort of uh, encouraged me to be involved in politics from a very young age. So I went to public schools and, you know, never thought about private <laughs> wealth or private um, of uh, education. It was, it was really um, a good background to have if you're going to be involved in, uh, in, in ultimately in journalism as I became. Sure. Um, and I think it encouraged, you know, the kind of the, the levels of wealth inequality that we see today um, where I live in the Hamptons, which got, you know, sort of more billionaires per square inch than any place else in, in the United States. Uh, and this extraordinary levels of wealth inequality. Um, uh, nothing like that existed in Minnesota. I mean, it was a, basically a middle-class society and, uh, you know, strong democratic roots. So I guess, you know, you could uh, discuss forever where someone comes from or why they do what they do, but certainly mm -hmm. that was a big influence on me. So I ended up going to 
getting a scholarship, um, going to Harvard, uh, spending uh, a long time in Cambridge and probably too much time, but uh, did uh, and is right. graduate work. This was in the 60s when everybody was involved in activism. And I worked for Ralph Nader in Washington as a Nader Raider back then. That was uh, a formative experience and, uh, you know, involved in anti-war protests and civil rights stuff and worked for the United Mine Workers for a while as an organizer in the early 70s. But this was a whole, you know, kind of prelude to, you know, jumping back to a corporate America and becoming kind of a, a you know, first of all, a Wall Street lawyer and then a Wall Street economist uh, at McKinsey and Company and became their chief economist. And along the side of all this, I, I continue to be an investigative kind of economist. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I love to, uh, to, you know, sort of gore, bury into puzzles that I saw along the way that were empirical puzzles that were kind of um, unexplained by the standard economic uh, theories. And one of them that I turned up very early in this, and this sort of had a pretty long-term impact uh, was this notion of the global underground economy. And I noticed the fact, stumbled on the fact, when I was in graduate school, that there was this kind of incredible number of $100 bills outstanding uh, outside of banks, somehow in circulation uh, in the economy. And, you know, most Americans at that point had never seen a $100 bill. Today, they're more common. But back then, uh, you know, I think the number was something like four or five per capita. Mm -hmm. Today, it's like 30 per capita. Mm. But, um, you know, the question is, where was all this currency? And uh, I wrote an article about it uh, that proposed that we actually do what uh, uh, the um, allied forces had done in Germany at the end of World War II, which was to uh, tackle um, the, uh, the black market in Germany. Um, they recalled currencies and had people come in and have to explain where they got these wads of bills. Um, you know, that proposal was out there. It was, <laughs> uh, you know, by me, uh, it was debated. And it set up a whole lot of uh, interesting uh, responses from uh, Congress and from the, uh, uh, the administration back then. And, and there, there actually got to be the Federal Reserve gave me uh, a whole lot of data that they hadn't published on uh, what we call inter-regional currency flows. Uh, and this is in 1977, 1978, when drug traffic was just starting to explode. We had uh, Colombia starting to export a lot of cocaine to the United States. We already had marijuana coming in uh, from Mexico. Uh, and this was associated with a lot of currency. And so it turned out that in that Federal Reserve data that I got by virtue of this article, um, I really came across the first hardcore evidence of you know, huge surpluses flowing into Florida, Texas, California banks uh, in the form of big bills. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, testified in front of Congress about this. The Federal Reserve instituted uh, limits on the amount of currency that you could turn into a, a bank. $10,000 back then was an awful lot of money. Um, and so that was sort of phase one of my interest in the global underground economy and what ultimately led to uh, the kind of research on capital flight, blood bankers and private banking and tax havens that uh, I've been continuing to this day. So in many ways, I kind of wish 
I never stumbled on a hundred dollar bill, but um, you know, this was sort of uh, actually, I think my dad was the one who pointed this out. He'd been pouring through federal reserve statistics for some reason. He said, why are there all these bills in circulation? You're the economist in the family. You know, there must be a theory about this and uh, there wasn't. So Really? Was there, was there very little known about this sort of cash economy and the implications oh, of the underground economy? it was virtually unknown. Before? I mean, uh, there were uh, two or three economists, including myself, at this point. I was in graduate school. And by so, this point, who, what year is it? This was between 1976 and, uh, and 1980, 81. So there you're in your late 20s. Two or three of us who were, who were writing about the mm-hmm. underground economy and trying to estimate the size based on uh, relationships between the demand for currency and and the observable economy that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of today, it's, you know, if you go back in the last five years, you see people like Larry Summers, you know, former Treasury Secretary, another Harvard economist going and proposing that we actually recall $100 bills. Well, you know, uh, that was in 19, that was in 2014. Uh, he had been Treasury Secretary with the power to do that uh, in the late 90s, and he didn't do it. But I had this idea back in the 1970s and could get almost no one in power to actually uh, be interested in it. I mean, I think uh, today you see about uh, more than two and a half to three trillion dollars uh, of U.S. currency and other big bills like the uh, euros. Um, in, in circulation. And most of that money is actually offshore. That was the, one of the key uh, findings of our research was that it wasn't within uh, the, the big countries themselves. That it was mainly being used in places like Argentina. Uh, Russia had enormous accumulations just mm-hmm. as a form of capital flight, a poor man's mm-hmm. capital flight to keep the uh, mattress money uh, as, a spec, as a kind of a hedge against their own uh, weak domestic currencies. So, you know, that was the first element of capital flight that we analyzed was this demand for big bills. And, uh, you know, it was also kind of neat because unlike ordinary economists who are sitting there building models of things and estimating equations and, you know, sort of uh, spending a lot of time in in the armchair, um, I actually got up out of the armchair and went around uh, to these Federal Reserve banks, uh, you know, uh, and and did some interviews with people about, you know, so what's the problem here? And this, this sort of became a basic pattern of of my kind of research. Um, Many economists to this day, you know, basically are comfortable kind of sitting back and doing theory, or Mm -hmm. uh, if they do estimate things, they, they tend to run big models with lots of data on computers, but it's not, uh, it, it, more recently, it's discounting become, some of the most important variables. Well, I mean, and, and basically, uh, and, you know, kind of doing, um, uh, you know, uh, a, a sort of theoretical, highly theoretical form of uh, inquiry without engaging in basic puzzles. So uh, the approach that I've taken and kind of encouraged uh, other economists to take is to, to actually, uh, as the, the great Princeton statistician uh, John Tukey once said, uh, just look at the fucking numbers, the, inter, the interocular eye test, he said. 
just look at the data, look for actual puzzles that need to be explained and start with those. And, you know, that has worked for me time and again. Um, so if you roll forward, the next puzzle I kind of tackled was related to the drug traffic. Uh, and I sort of wanted to figure out, well, we see all this currency flowing into banks. Which banks are involved in this? And where are the banks? And who are these characters that we're seeing? So I ended up going to Florida in the early 80s and spending a lot of time there and looking at an institution that had been formed in Nassau called the Castle Bank and Trust. Um, and that was one of the first offshore banks that anyone had uh, noticed or investigated. Interesting. Where is Nassau just for? Uh, Nassau in the Bahamas. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. British, so it's not, uh, a, it's not a, it's not a U.S. bank. It is a not, not bank. a, not a U.S. bank and therefore not under U.S. jurisdiction, but only, you know, 60, 80 miles off the shore, you know, out of, away mm. from Florida. Um, so this bank had been created basically by um, uh, Florida, Florida lawyers and the Chicago lawyers who were either working for the CIA or for the Chicago mafia. <laughs> and uh, their client list was this incredible list, which I got a hold of, mm. of 200 of the wealthiest Americans who had put their money in offshore trusts that were illegal. Um, and they were all located in this Nassau uh, bank. And, uh, you know, so we, you know, people like Paul uh, Helliwell, who was a big, uh, uh, he was the paymaster for the Bay of Pigs. Um, we found the Pritzker family from Chicago with the owners of the Hyatt Hotel chain had a offshore trusts there that kind of uh, somehow suggested that they were uh, connected to the Chicago crime families, uh, leading members of the Cleveland Mafia. Um, Bob Guccione of Penthouse Magazine. My favorite uh, was uh, Credence Clearwater Revival. You know, the rock uh, group. Uh, <laughs> they had been talked into parking their their uh, loot from the, you know, their incredible career. I mean, if you listen to Credence to this day, they're, you know, just the best. Yeah, they are. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, they were, they've been talked into doing a tax dodge by putting money in this offshore uh, haven in the mm. form of an offshore trust. So this is an example of where, you know, the, some of the first practitioners, some of the most advanced uh, work on offshore havens was being done, not by some shady character in the Cayman Islands or, you know, uh, uh, Naui or, or sort of the Cook Islands. Um, it was right there in Miami. And they were setting up these operations in places like the Bahamas and later the Cayman Islands, uh, just because they were next door. <clears throat> so that was sort of phase one. And of course, of that, I mean, without going into the, the gory details, I, I was able to get uh, quite a bit of information about that bank. And there's a long story about uh, Richard Nixon, actually, it turns out, this is a good example of the long arm of investigative stories. You never know how long it's going to take once you sure. start on one of these tales uh, to actually uh, have it complete. So about 1980, I guess I was doing the research on Castle Bank and Trust. Uh, I interviewed everyone I could find uh, who had worked at the bank, which had been closed in 1974. Uh, and one of the characters I came across was the actual treasurer uh, for this bank, a Canadian guy. 
uh, and uh, he would not talk to me, wouldn't say boo. And he knew all, where all the bodies were buried because he knew he had account authorization was part of his uh, domain. Mm -hmm. And uh, but then he moved and retired back to uh, 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 the uh, I think it was Calgary. Uh, and uh, for 30 years, I didn't hear from him. Uh, and I kept every two or three years, I'd say, are you ready to talk? <laughs> this is an old story. All these people have died. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody's going to come after you. Yeah. Uh, Richard Nixon is gone. Can you confirm this unconfirmed report? Um, I had I had interviewed uh, this. The IRS had actually done a good thing. They had hired a private investigator uh, named Norman Casper. Norman had managed in, uh, uh, to seduce the president of this bank when he was on a trip to Miami with a, uh, a lady friend. They went out on a date. Norman broke into the guy's briefcase and got a complete list of all of these clients. Um, and the next thing that happened, that was about 1973, um, was that uh, President Nixon was still in power. He decided to fire the head of the IRS to cancel this investigation and to name a, a new IRS commissioner from Cleveland uh, who promptly closed the whole thing down. So Norman had told me, you know, you've got to look closer at this bank. This is, you know, Nixon had accounts there. I can't prove it. Um, you know, it wasn't just uh, organized crime. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, sort of uh, CIA types. It was, you know, the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a huge story. Um, Last year, he finally decided to say, I can confirm that Mr. Nixon had at least two accounts at the Nassau branch of Castle Bank and Trust nice. uh, while, while he was there. So uh, we still don't have documentary evidence of that. Documentation is nice. Probably doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but at least this fellow was in a position to know there's no reason to believe he would be making this up after all these years. Um, you know, I think it's a credible piece of, uh, of evidence. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like why, why did Nixon, um, have business in this offshore bank to begin with? Well, there's a, a lot of, uh, stuff about Richard Nixon's, uh, access to dirty money and to his relationship with, uh, criminal elements. And, you know, there's a whole literature on that. I won't try to replicate it, but it, it's been very difficult for anyone to get any proof of the, the dark money that he had access to. But there are all these discussions in the, white, in the Watergate tapes about his, I have access to a million dollars. I know where I can get it. Um, you know, if we need to bribe, uh, you know, when the Watergate burglars got arrested um, in 1973, he was trying to get them to, sh to be quiet uh, and not implicate uh, you know, his whole administration. So, you know, there was substantial questions about where this money had come from. I think we know now it was it sure. probably parked offshore in this account. So ultimately came from and who paid them the bribes and, and all that kind of thing was, you know, Nixon was never really impeached. He was, uh, he resigned from office. There was never a thorough investigation of all his chicanery and sort of like Trump, you know, we haven't gotten to the bottom of his financial chicanery either. Um, but, uh, you know, this was an early uh, 
uh, investigation that I did that actually showed the value of getting out in the field, finding the people on the ground, talking to them about the puzzles and the mysteries that you're seeing. A lot of a lot of things came up while you were speaking there, um, but I think it's best to stick to the timeline. So, yeah, uh, you say you went yeah. down there in uh, in sixty uh, eight, or was it sixty? No, no, the the, uh, the Castle Bank and Trust uh, uh, case I investigated by going to Miami in nineteen eighty eighty one. Eighty one, and so you're by 30 then years the old. bank had the bank had already been closed by uh, you know law enforcement. Uh, the the principals involved in the bank, all of the 200 wealthy uh, trust owners, mm-hmm. uh, were basically got off scot-free. They were never prosecuted for tax evasion, uh, either by the Nixon administration or by the successors, even though it was a pretty clear-cut case uh, that they'd been involved in this. And I think that was another eye-opener, you know, sort of people of influence, uh, kind of this transnational class of people who are making use of havens to this day um, are basically also have enormous political clout, political influence, and can influence uh, law enforcement and the prosecution of cases. So uh, it's, it's just very hard to bring these folks to, to justice. Mm. But anyway, the, the next phase, that, that kind of um, was my first real introduction to offshore havens and offshore banking. I mean, basically Nassau at that time, the Bahamas, was one of maybe 15 uh, uh, offshore havens of any size or significance at that time. There were places like Panama, uh, the Cayman Islands was just getting going, Uh, you had the Channel Islands, and then you had traditional havens like Switzerland, uh, and Liechtenstein, Monaco, uh, but by and large, this was a relatively small industry back then. So we talk about the growth of treasure islands over time. And you can find these, all of these players going back to the, well, in the case of Switzerland, back to the uh, 18th century, uh, uh, doing private banking for the uh, wealthy classes in, in Europe, especially the French. But um, the kind of private banking that was going on back then was relatively small activity based on, uh, you know, sort of the, the people who were serving the interests of uh, elites that were worried about political turmoil, not so much taxation. As the tax system became more active and aggressive and there came to be income taxes uh, in the 20th century, you know, the United States income tax dates back to 1913. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, over time, gradually you got tax rates uh, that started to rise, and especially in the 1930s during uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration, you saw the first significant increases in uh, progressive, you know, sort of progressive income tax rates during that period. The, um, you know, that, that was the period when you first saw havens really begin to explode. So I have this letter from 1936, from the Secretary of the Treasury, Robert Mor- uh, Henry Morgenthau, to FDR. And he's complaining about the fact that the rich in the United States, in some cases, are beginning to take their money outside the United States, putting it in, in, in a, a number of these so-called havens. Uh, and that's the first time we see this phrase being used um, sort of by uh, U.S. Treasury Secretary. Uh, 
and he's complaining about the havens he's complaining about then are places like Newfoundland. Uh, it turns out the, the Canadians had actually started uh, to offer services to the wealth. The idea of people parking money in Newfoundland is really pretty strange. But it, uh, Panama was also on his list. So that's from the mid-30s. Um, as time goes by, you, especially after, during World War II, when you see income tax rates going above 50 to 80 percent or more, uh, that's when you know people begin to have serious incentives, and so after the after the war in nineteen late forties, early fifties, you begin to see the growth of uh, of the sort of offshoring of uh, private wealth to a much more dramatic uh, degree. Um, and, but what really gets it going, and this is the next phase of my research is between roughly 1973 and 1993, you had an enormous explosion in the volume of finance that was being provided by first world banks to developing countries. Uh, and this was because we had had this oil crisis in 1973, oil prices peaked. A lot of the petrodollars that were generated by OPEC ended up not being invested in the Middle East, but they're being sent to Western banks uh, as deposits. Well, what were the banks going to do with this money? They decided, let's pick on the third world because they don't really have regulation. Uh, they don't have taxation. They don't have any restrictions on capital flight. And so a lot of this money will just end up being recycled to us. Um, and so they ended up doing an enormous amount of lending uh, uh, to uh, countries like Mexico and Brazil and Venezuela and Argentina and the Philippines. And they all went deep into the trough in terms of external debt. This is the genesis of the so-called third world debt crisis, the first one in 1984. So that period is, is the period that I began to study here because the question is, for me, the puzzle in that period was, what happened to the money? You know, th this was a period in which more than $3 trillion, it was a record number of offshore loans and, uh, and finance and uh, investments were channeled to developing countries. And yet, almost uniformly, uh, it didn't produce any growth. You know, you can see the growth rate in the Philippines actually declining uh, as the debt increased. You see uh, similar economic crises throughout Latin America, country after country after country. So that was my next sort of big puzzle that I wanted to go after. What happened to the money? Um, and that's the kind of the genesis of this book, Blood Bankers. Um, the first, uh, first round of it was when I was at, at uh, actually uh, at, at McKinsey and Company, where McKinsey had a, a you know, very strong global presence back then, but their headquarters was in New York. So I was chief economist running this little group of people who were uh, taking a look at some issues in the, uh, in the area of monetary policy and, and banking, mm -hmm. because we had a huge banking clientele. Uh, you know, all of the major New York City banks, uh, Citibank, JP Morgan, Bank America, they were all clients of McKinsey. Can you, can you emphasize for the audience just how significant of a firm McKinsey & Co. is and also what type of 
type of access and even I dare say power you might have had it as the chief economist of this firm? Well, I would say, you know, McKinsey is a, a very successful worker cooperative <laughs> in the sense that they have, they're run by a partnership group. They have three or four tiers, I think now of uh, partners and they're very global. Even back then they had offices, not only in New York and San Francisco and Chicago, uh, Atlanta, but also in, uh, you know, in Houston, uh, which is the oil patch of growing. But we, we also had offices in London and Frankfurt and uh, Italy. And, uh, you know, we're beginning to expand into Asia. And uh, today the, the firm is everywhere. Uh, they'd be in almost basically every a premier city of note in the world, right? Well, they have, uh, you know, I think they're still regarded as the most influential uh, private consulting firm. They work mostly for people in the, in the private sector. Mm. Uh, they work mostly at uh, top management level, working for CEOs and for people who are actually making strategic decisions. Uh, you know, other, other uh, players in this industry, like the accounting firms, all have their consultants now. And, you know, there are other strategy firms that are just focused on strategy. But McKinsey is, has always established, I think, uh, kind of the premier uh, firm for its kind of reputation for professional integrity. They're not uh, going to tell you what you want to hear necessarily. Um, they, they pride themselves on independence of their clients. Uh, they've gotten involved lately in some uh, horrible scandals. And I just find the place, uh, you know, it's a completely different institution from the one I knew in the 1980s. I think uh, it's partly just due to the fact that they became successful so successful and and they're also yeah, were looking like over their shoulders clients who are governments in, right as well as clients who are governments well no the i mean some of the worst examples are you know in south africa they were involved in basically helping the guptas uh, you know fleece the zuma regime uh jacob zuma has just uh, been received <laughs> let out of uh the hospital he was in prison mm. um, but he had a medical parole but he was uh, basically a very corrupt president of South Africa from 2008 until uh, 2016. Um, McKinsey was involved in getting into South Africa by way of a family called the Guptas who were very involved with uh, uh, Zuma's whole story. Mm. Uh, they were, they've been involved in consulting to the Saudis, you know, you know, so no worse regime on the on the face of the earth in terms of human rights than the Saudis. Uh, but you know, the Crown Prince uh, MBS has, uh, uh, you know, trying to uh, revive reform uh, the economy there and have actually have Sa Saudis produce something more than oil. So he hired McKinsey to, mm -hmm. to give him a strategy study. They've been involved in China and working there as well. So. Uh, and they were consulting to the Sackler family, which is, you know, no one more involved in the opiate crisis uh, in the United States than, than the Sacklers and Purdue, uh, you know, sort of pharmaceutical with the uh, Oxycontin is, was their, their main product. I mean, mm. tens of thousands of Americans have died as a result of that crisis. And McKinsey was right in there telling them how to push it uh, more aggressively. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, I've, I've been discouraged by the the, the 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 evolution of the firm, but I think back in the 80s, as of that point when I was there, I was impressed with how 
professional they were and how, you know, the, the, had very strong values of uh, respecting independence and also being independent research and, and also doing work for the public sector. You know, that was another mm-hmm. thing, volunteer to do studies for, you know, like the city of New York. And um, anyway, so while, while I was there, I got involved in uh, some, some studies of banking and I noticed and came to see uh, evidence that some of these big banks at the same time that they had been lending, uh, supposedly lending to Latin America uh, and uh, were the largest lenders to Latin America, were actually taking more money out in the form of capital flight uh, than they had loaned. So Citibank was the prime example about that. Of that. And in, in April of 1986, I wrote a cover story for the New Republic called uh, The Debt Hoax. Um, and that was explosive. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, all of, uh, I mean, I got called in by the senior partner at McKinsey and they said, did you get this data from us? And I said, absolutely not. Uh, and, uh, but I was able to identify exactly how much uh, Citibank had taken out of Mexico and compared that with how much uh, they had done in the way of syndicated mm. lending. And there was just no comparison. You know, and so it, it, explain from, that significance to the, to the viewer. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. That well, they this is are... connected to the Haven story, but it's not exactly the same thing. So let's step back for a second. Tax havens are uh, places around the planet that are, first of all, they're not just tax havens. They're havens for, you know, there's basically financial secrecy. Yeah, secrecy uh, jurisdictions yeah. where people, you know, where that are underregulated. There's low taxation on foreigners who operate individual or business or have businesses located there. Uh, very little regulation of their uh, corporate activities, and it's sort of a, uh, an opportunity for you to uh, to go to a place with no regulation, uh, kind of the Ayn Rand dream. And, you know, the, their interest, the Haven is interested in, in supporting the, the local lawyers and the bankers and the accountants who work for these uh, investors who come to the Haven in exchange for uh, this permissive environment. So that's, that's what we're talking about. I mentioned already the Bahamas and, uh, uh, you know, Cayman Islands, Panama. Channel Islands, Switzerland. Uh, Channel Islands, all these places were basically selling the same mm. kind of bundle uh, of, of uh, underregulated activity. Uh, but what's missing from that story that emphasizes the jurisdictions and the archipelago of treasure islands, mm-hmm. the so-called treasure islands, is the, are the institutions that are behind it. Uh, because this is like... Uh, well, you know, like the defense industry or the global airlines industry, there's a powerful private banking industry that's basically built up these havens over time. And from the standpoint of this industry, um, they don't care whether, you know, there's a Nassau goes up or down. They'll just quickly replace one haven with another. Yeah. But the, the key players in this industry are the largest banks in the world, players like United uh, you know, Union Bank, uh, United, UBS, uh, Deutsche, HSBC. I mean, they're all involved. Right? JP Morgan. Yeah. You know, they're all the most prominent firms, mm. and 
this is surprising to me. I thought that, oh, these are fly-by-night operators in third world shady, uh, you know, sultry places. Um, no, these are the largest institutions and they're all basically back in the first world. Their headquarters are in places like London and New York and Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're operating this huge global network of havens, uh, you know, to, to serve their private banking clients and their corporate clients in terms of um, providing these haven services. So that's a focus that I think the tax justice network years later kind of lost. Um, they stopped talking about corporations or banks or the, the, the kind of the institution, uh, institutional responsibility, you know, the McKinsey's of the world. Uh, they, right. they stopped talking about the accounting firms as such. Um, part of that is because, you know, some of the NGOs are located in places that have tough libel laws like the UK. Mm -hmm. And for years, it was kind of taboo to talk about. It was easier to talk about government misbehavior than it was uh, corporate misbehavior. Um, but for whatever reason, we kind of lost this perspective that I started with, which was focusing on what an, a leading Western bank was doing uh, to developing countries. And, you know, you could argue, as Citibank did, that this is just a uh, capital flight from Mexico was just something that they received passively. And, uh, you know, they were just standing there with their hats and the money came across the borders. Well, yeah, except that the guy that you made the loans to at the finance ministry is the same guy setting up private accounts with you. Yeah. And some of the money that he's raking off and, and, uh, and sharing with his family and <laughs> the accounts he set up offshore came from the very loans that you made. So, you know, there was much more of this round tripping than I had ever expected. This is a real shock to me to see the degree to which they had made a business out of this cynical enterprise mm. of lending to the very same people that they were taking money from. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, it's identifying a, a local stakeholder in this example, Mexico, politician or perhaps the leader of a large construction engineering firm and saying to him, we'll finance this project. And we've also sent down uh, special McKinsey engineers and strategists and look at this amazing project we can build for you. It's only going to cost this amount. And we also have access to the financing and it's going to give you this type of rate of return and this type of growth. And look, you're also going to get a great piece of pie here, some political clout as well. And then they start building the project and they realize that perhaps all of these projections were overinflated and overstated and they have to eventually pay back the debt because that money is borrowed. It's not given to them. And is, is this too much of a straw man um, explanation of what's going on? No, here I think that that comes close. Uh, but um, what's interesting is how many variations on this basic sort of uh, I guess you could call it kind of neo-imperialism, but it's not like there's some grand plot. It's sort of like the the, the private sector institutions. Yeah, uh, it, it's not at the know, state are, level. It's... I mean, they're, it's quite clear that the U.S. government was pretty much aware of, of a lot of this, but I don't think and I don't claim that it was any kind of grand plot. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a well-known book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman, which came out after Blood Bankers was published. Mm -hmm. And it, touted this theory, but the, the guy claimed to be, John Perkins claimed to be 
you know, this operative who had been mm-hmm. hired by the CIA to run around uh, indebting these countries and making mm-hmm. them dependent. I think that's all nonsense. Um, all nonsense? So that's very all, interesting. I, I did want to well, ask think, you about uh, John Perkins and Confessions of Echo Hit, yeah. Hitman specifically, because it does, it does uh, almost give the other side of the story that you tell. It's like, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I understand I, that you have to take it with a grain of salt that it is sort of embellished yeah. uh, to over-romanticize it. Um, yeah. But there are, I mean, y- your take is that it's totally BS. There isn't elements of truth to it at all. I'm prepared to sit down with him and uh, and see his evidence. Uh, mm-hmm. I've never found any for the theory that this was a government plot uh, at, in in any sense by uh, Western intelligence agencies to you know in debt uh, you know, the conscious uh, success of that. I mean, I, I just don't find any evidence. And in all my, inc- I mean, I've been to 50 developing countries. I've never seen any of these operatives that he's talking about. But to be fair, he, he doesn't claim to be doing it on behalf of the CIA. He claims to be doing it on behalf of a, um, a, of a construction firm called Maine, which is now uh, you right. know, out of business. Charles T. Maine. I knew yeah. people who worked at Charles T. Maine when I was in, in Cambridge. Uh, you know, I knew a couple. Uh, you know, this is a good old architectural engineering firm. I mean, mm-hmm. The idea that Charles T. Maine, this tiny, uh, you know, Boston consulting firm, uh, in architectural engineering is a very specific uh, specialty. Uh, the idea that they were running around creating all these, uh, uh, all the chicanery is just, you know. But again, and, and it's it amazing to hear you, you know, say that as well, as someone who was the chief economist at McKinsey, essentially yeah. doing the exact same thing as, as he's proposed well, to be doing, because he was also the chief economist at Maine. Well, I mean, McKinsey you know? was a different, on a different scale, and mm. uh, they were not involved in designing these projects, you know, and, and, and the projects that we were doing, I mean, were not involved in capital flight. We were working for the banks that were, you know, pursuing this private banking business. And helping them to strategize about how to do that, but you know we weren't you know uh, helping to take money out of Mexico or arranging bogus loans or projects. That wasn't what McKinsey was doing. Charles D. Maine, um, you know, well maybe they did uh, facilitate that. I just I just don't see it. I mean I certainly don't see any uh, substantial government role uh, in this. Tolerance is another thing, though. That's a different question. Did the U.S. government actually know about these kinds of lousy loans? Did they um, do anything to stop this kind of egregious behavior? Or, you know, that was helping to bankrupt these developing countries? Uh, absolutely not. You know, they turned their a blind eye to it, and that and from, from that standpoint, you could, um, you know, you could fault them for it. Do mm-hmm. they have? friendly relationships with the banks and do they have lots of people working with the financial institutions um you know in 50 years i have never had much success uh at um at getting the so-called u.s intelligence agencies uh to collaborate with me on anything in terms of delivering data they if they if they know all this stuff about financial transactions internationally uh, if the NSA is uh, able to monitor this stuff, you know, let's put it out there. Let's, <laughs> let's at least the historical stuff. Let's go back to the 1970s and 80s and look mm. at the transactions that they're supposed to have uh, have seen. Because mm-hmm. in theory, they should be able to tell you 
uh, all about this stuff. But what I was able to do was to come up with some alternative methods for estimating uh, capital flight from developing countries. And I did a lot of work on that, especially for TJ TJN in terms of estimating the actual uh, illicit flows and the illicit stocks that are sitting offshore earning money tax-free. Yeah. Uh, so we can, we can talk about that a little bit later. But just to complete this thought about that McKinsey article, that led me to basically, um, you know, go out and get a book contract and to begin to write, do the research that led to the Blood Bankers, Blood Bankers. Uh, book. Because the, the first installment was that chapter about, was the piece about Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that uh, I then found that every single developing country had a slightly different story about what was going on. So uh, I went to the Philippines in 1986. Marcos was uh, overthrown. Ferdinand Marcos had been dictator since 1973. And uh, he had discovered that he uh, could get the New York banks to basically lend profusely to the central bank of the Philippines. Um, and so the Philippine government was on the hook for all the loans that were made by uh, players like uh, manufacturers. Hanover was the lead bank, syndicating bank for uh, the central bank of the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, basically uh, from uh, 1973 to 1984, uh, the, um, I, I, after after this, after Marcos fell in February of 1986, I went to Manila, uh, and uh, I think I ended up there in 1987, uh, and I was able to go get access to the central bank records, uh, computer printouts, and I found all of these loans that had come from manufacturer Hanover, and I paired them up with the transactions about what was done with them. Mm, what was and actually built. They were actually sent off. They were wired uh, to bank accounts of Marcos mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in Swiss banks, mm. uh, you know, especially uh, Swiss Bank Corp at that point was a big uh, Marcos crony bank. So, you know, I think we were never able to get complete data, but I estimated that about – uh, a third of the Philippine foreign debt had simply been stolen by Ferdinand Marcos and wired directly to Swiss banks. And For that personal wealth. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it, it wasn't even round tripped in the conventional sense of yeah. capital flight. They didn't, yeah. ask, you know, this guy had it all wired. It right. went to the central bank. It <laughs> became a, a, a loan to the, government of the center of the Philippines, which was then on the hook for the, for the debt. Uh, the New York banks uh, got to collect that debt later on. And then uh, Swiss banks ended up with the actual funding, which was mm. never recovered by the Philippine mm. government. Yeah. To, to this day, right. There is rumored this, billions and billions of dollars of value that Emilda Marcos has access to and, you know, won't, Relinquish. Well, we think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, part of this was creamed off by the successors because one of the mysteries here was another puzzle. Okay. Uh, Imelda. Um, Who is the wife? Money. But anyway, the, so the Marcos yep. story, you know, I mean, uh, this was pretty outrageous. And so I went to the, you know, the minister, Cor 
Corazon Aquino was the successor. What a name as well. Uh, she was supposedly a Democrat and a reformer. Yeah. And um, her minister of the economy um, basically said, well, we were going to go after the Marcos offshore accounts, but we got threatened uh, by John Reed, who was chairman of Citibank. And he said, if, if you go after uh, the Marcos story, uh, you know, and disrupt the New York City banks, uh, or, or, you know, the banks kind of stick together on this stuff. It's amazing. Um, you know, we will make your lives miserable. That was what he said, quote, unquote. Mm. And, you know, they, they have a lot of leverage with trade finance and with, you know, transfers, just all kinds of uh, risk assessments banks mm -hmm. do with respect to developing countries. There's a lot of leverage that they could bring to bear. And so, you know, and I think there was also the unofficial reasons, uh, which you get into, which is that, uh, you know, some of the people who came after Marcos participated in recovering money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and putting it in their own pockets. Yeah. Uh, so that that could also be a case. Uh, I had found that in the case of Paraguay. Paraguay in the in the late, I think it was 1989, um, had seen my work on private banking, and they and uh, a fellow named G uh, General Strustner had just uh, been dictator, and he'd left power. Um, and so they were eager to track down his foreign assets. And uh, so uh, my research assistant, who, a Colombian lady named Silvana Paternostro, who's now become a very talented writer, um, uh, you know, she and I took this on and we went, uh, she went down to Paraguay and we looked at the phone records from Strustner and we found that uh, he had indeed parked most of his money in Citibank uh, in Miami. Um, we, to we told the attorney general of Paraguay this story, and that was the last we ever heard from him. Um, he, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to accuse him of having pocketed the money, but it was never prosecuted. And, yep. uh, you know, so the, the, the story kind of just disappeared. But mm. um, anyway, that was a chronic problem with doing this kind of research. You come up with exactly where the bodies are buried and then the bodies disappear. And you, 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 you're digging into, um, you're digging into the financial transactions of extremely corrupt actions, right? Especially in developing parts of the world where there is, um, you know, a lot of death associated with these transactions as well. I mean, uh, you spoke about in, uh, I don't remember the, the name of the place off the top of my head, but it was in Guatemala and there were two old native villages that were totally displaced and in fact almost massacred uh, just to make way for one of these development projects that was um, then going to uh, take place there. But um, I, I don't, I don't want to leave the Philippines quite yet. There was an anecdote of Emilda Marcos building a theater Right. And right. could you please tell this anecdote and the, the person that ends up getting stuck in the concrete as, as a way to explain what the sort of insanity of the Philippines was at that moment? Melda was trying to make uh, when she was in power in the early 80s, she had a, a lot of uh, designs to make the uh, Manila kind of cultural capital. She wanted to start an international film festival. And so in 1981, um, you know, she had all kinds of extravagant projects and, uh, you know, the, 
cultural complex and the, uh, the heart center uh, and you know a floating casino but this was uh, this particular film festival was one of her um, pet projects and she hired a, a leading uh, Los Angeles agent uh, to produce the first edition um, but the problem was that they they with only a few days you know a few months left to go they were way behind on uh, having this film center um, uh, have a new auditorium. And she had designed a, like, <laughs> as usual, uh, you know, uh, spared no expense to design uh, a um, film center was based on the Parthenon, basically a full-scale replica of the Par Parthenon yeah. in downtown Manila on the Manila in, Bay. Which is a terribly poor country at this stage. Terribly poor country. Uh, you know, couldn't afford any of this, mm -hmm. uh, but she had all these uh, loans to spend. So, you know, um, and then uh, with two months to go, uh, the project was way behind schedule. They had 8,000 workers working on this. I went to the site there. It's, you know, still there to this day. And Unfinished? Uh, well, no, it's, it's been finished, sadly enough, but um, at the end of this project, with two months to go, they were racing. They had a terrible uh, uh, catastrophe. They had uh, uh, stories, several stories of this thing collapsed, and they trapped, uh, you know, uh, 25 workers under the rubble. Uh, and, um, you know, there were a lot of pressures on the part of union leaders and church people to stop the work and to be, you know, to uh, respect the bodies of the dead that were there and to mm -hmm. have commemoration. She refused, and she had them go back to work and continue on. Um, and so in January 18th, 1982, they had the opening of the Grand Festival. Mm. Um, and she, uh, you know, she, everybody with black ties, there were all kinds of dignitaries. Uh, Priscilla Presley was there, George Hamilton was there, or Peter Ustinov, Jeremy Irons, uh, you know, Adnan Khashoggi, uh, you know, just all kinds of, uh, prestigious people had been mm -hmm. invited for this event. Uh, and then they finally turned to the heat, to the films and they had body heat and Gallipoli, some of these very first rate films. But what was problematic for them was that uh, it was a very hot night. Uh, and so um, the uh, film festival that night was attended by enormous swarm of flies uh, all evening long and hovering around this area where the workers had been interred uh, without a decent burial uh, several months earlier. Um, the film festival ended up not making money, losing $100 million, uh, and uh, never seeing the light of day again. Um, but uh, they do have a, a, a plaque sort of honoring the uh, mm. the workers who died trying to make this thing happen on time yeah. no i i think you, i think it's, you might have brushed over the 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 horrific point there like not only did they not stop construction but emilda just ordered them to pour concrete into where they lay and everyone to just continue to keep building around it which drew the flies on that night that's right because concrete is porous and mm -hmm. you know, that, that's um, and so this is this is like a you know a terrible anecdote that just highlights the um, unbelievable corruption of the Marcoses, right? 
but the question then becomes, and this is what your investigative journalist, uh, in, this is what your book goes on to show, but where is the, could you explain to us, where is the money coming from? Why are people giving the Philippines money, especially when they can't see that money being turned into anything for the public? Could you just yeah. explain the infrastructure of all of this for us to help understand just the sure. very, you know, lay listener? Well, uh, they're, they're, how do they even two, get access to the money? There are two basic points to be made here. One is that, um, Development economists typically talk about developing countries as uh, as being basically responsible for their own fates. Uh, you know, development is a kind of uh, uh, indigenous process, and corruption is also regarded as uh, indigenous, uh, sort of local to the institutions and the culture. Um, my perspective on that is that, yeah, there's some of that. But we have to also pay attention to the international relationships that have a profound impact on how developing countries turn out. Uh, and the nexus of relationships, including the banks and law firms and accounting firms that just, you know, are indifferent to the fate of any particular country, but have an enormous impact on, on money laundering, on tax, tax evasion, uh, and on kleptocracy. So that's point one. This point two is in the case of the Philippines, you also have the fact that like most developing countries, go governments can't go bankrupt. That's a key aspect of uh, distinction from private companies. And uh, they can run into financial trouble in which they won't be able to, to uh, borrow, but they can never get loan forgiveness. Uh, their debts are never completely canceled in most cases. There are a few exceptions to that, but there are by and large, the great attraction of lending, if you're Citibank to Mexico, is that Mexico is going to be on the hook, regardless of what they do with the money. No matter how bad things get. No matter how bad things, uh, no matter who changed power and what president is in office, uh, Mexico per se is going to have to come up with the, the payback. So that's true also for uh, loans from multilateral institutions like the World Bank. Um, and the IMF, and they become the senior creditors to countries like the Philippines. So some of the worst projects in the world you find being financed by these multilateral institutions that mm. have, uh, you know, sort of demonstrated time and again kind of insensitivity. Um, you mentioned the case of Guatemala, those two dams uh, that, that led to basically the extinction of this uh, Indian tribe. Those are World Bank loans. Um, the World Bank didn't really care. They were, uh, they were trying to support the government of Guatemala at the time, which was a military junta. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there was a geopolitics involved, you know, sort of supporting uh, the right-wing uh, rulers in Guatemala or the potential left-wing guerrillas. So in, at the time, uh, prior to the fall of the wall in 1990, you had this dimension of geopolitics involved, where uh, it was perceived that, you know, it was better to lend to a military government uh, to support who was, who was an ally of the United States than it was to, uh, you know, so to, to avoid corruption or waste. Uh, at least the money was getting to your friends in these, in these places. So I, what I found in researching blood bankers was that there were several different canonical stories about where the money went. One was great big lousy projects. Mm -hmm. People just 
threw money at without, uh, you know, any kind of care. Uh, and by people, you're still referring to Citibank, World Bank, IMF? I'm, I'm referring to all of those, but much of the lending was done with government guarantees or with, you know, World Bank lending directly. Uh, much of the Citibank or the XM Bank, Expert Import Bank from the United States was also government guarantee. Um, it wasn't necessarily the government guarantee that was essential but to the, to the outcome, but you basically have this idea that the banks are, themselves were somehow going to be relieved of responsibility for the lousy lending. Uh, they weren't on the hook uh, with respect to how the projects turned out or what was done with the money. So it wasn't related to performance. If you have a private investment uh, or you know, private company that's going to depend for its payback on how a project is done, turns out, you know, that provides a little bit more incentive to be careful. But one of the reasons uh, lending to developing countries was dominated by private loans um, or a financial a supply of finances to developing countries that were dominated by these, by these loans was that they were basically independent of performance. And so there's a, a big um, kind of uh, pathology in the international financial system is that we had some of the poorest countries on the planet that needed finance more than anyone else uh, had uh, set themselves and put themselves in a position where the lenders just could care less about how the projects turned out. Um, that's kind of one of the, uh, the, the patterns that we see here. Um, so a second sort of, you know, pattern that we would see would be just capital flight. I mean, outright ripoffs like the kind we saw in the case of Marcos, where they didn't even, there wasn't even a project. Mm -hmm. and, and the money was just round trips through various uh, fronts. And, and so can you define capital flight first? Well, uh, capital flight has to do with, uh, first of all, we talk about human capital flight being, you know, skills, labor, leaving developing countries and moving abroad. Financial capital flight is the form of uh, foreign reserves and uh, foreign exchange that flees uh, a, uh, a country and goes elsewhere and ends up being uh, owned perhaps by the residents uh, of the com com country, still uh, resident there, but is, um, is basically uh, outside the jurisdiction of the, uh, of the country. So it's located in offshore banks or offshore uh, investments. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are a number of different ways of estimating that. You can, you know, standard metrics that we get from, uh, you know, sort of balance of payment statistics have figures for so-called offshore sources, uh, like uh, the uh, uh, foreign investment and loans, uh, sources of, of foreign capital, and then uh, the uses of foreign capital and sort of financing the balance of payments uh, and uh, accumulating exchange reserves. So you can have measures for all those four different uh, variables. And then you can add them up and you'll find out that in general, for most developing countries, there are huge discrepancies 
uh, in the form of net outflows. Uh, in other words, the, uh, the sources just generally exceed the uses uh, that you measure. And in the case of uh, major debtors like Mexico and the Philippines and Brazil, you saw that, you know, this accumulation of, you know, of hundreds of billions of dollars offshore uh, during this, uh, this seminal period. In the case of Russia and China, more recently, we've seen the same thing happen. Yeah. You know, so you, you can actually get a handle on how much capital flight there is. Um, and then you can compare that with other independent measures of what offshore assets there are. Uh, and, you know, all told, we now have at least $50 trillion offshore. Uh, about half which of is, it is from... Which is what percentage of the world's total uh, economy? Nick Shackson says that. I, I would say it's, a, yeah, it's about third. 15 to 20% of, okay. uh, offshore, yeah. of all wealth uh, is parked offshore beyond the reach. But it's all owned by the top 0.1% of, oh, of the population. Oh, yeah, of course. So the, it's about the impact corporations that, more so, isn't it? Not even individuals. Yeah. I mean, um, it's 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 owned by. Well, I'm talking here about individual, mostly individually owned uh, uh, offshore wealth. But uh, there is corporate offshore wealth. It's mm -hmm. another problem. But most of that is ultimately traceable back to you know individual owners. So yeah, uh, you know, it, collectively in the world economy, it's kind of this gigantic black hole in the in the world economy where there's there has been essentially no progress in terms of cracking down on this. Um, so we, we have, uh, you know, the, this is kind of jumping forward to the work I did with TJN 2012 and, and tax justice network up to this day. But uh, you know, we were, we did the first offshore estimates, the, the, the first estimates of the volume of offshore wealth, um, published in 2012 and then have been updating those ever since. But mm. the numbers just keep getting bigger. Uh, there's no evidence that this yeah. has uh, gone away or declined or we've gotten a whole a hang, angle on it. Yeah. Um, but to go back to this period of the, of the Philippines, I mean, one of the interesting things, I, I wrote this article about uh, Marcos and the Marcos money and the Central Bank of the Philippines um, uh, in Beijing. Uh, in May of 1989, when Tiananmen Square was uh, was going on, so uh, the Asian Development Bank had its annual meetings in Tiananmen Square in <laughs> May of '89, just as uh, all the students were gathering and building statues of liberty. And Gorbachev came and gave a talk and so forth. And I was sitting there in this uh, hotel, just kind of trying to write this. <laughs> this article about the mm, good time to be there very bizarre well it was a sad time to be there because it was i i left before there was the violence moved in but i got to know some of these students mm. uh in the peking daily uh they were living in this uh in incredible conditions but they i, I have this uh poignant memory of their actually building the statue of liberty and reading the declaration of independence and assuming that the Americans would come to their aid, uh, and that you know we would stand up uh, to the uh, repressors who were about to move in. Uh, of course, that didn't happen. Bush basically, George, George Bush one basically expressed some regret 
but then our relationship with uh, uh, you know the Chinese uh, dictatorship was immediately put back in the first place and uh, that, that was a, a sad time for me because I saw our government kind of walking away from defending democracy in that place mm. at a time when we had enormous leverage over China mm. and could have affected the outcome just like we had in uh, in Russia uh, also failed to you know achieve a democratic transition there but you know that's another whole aspect of, of yeah the discussion here I think Leading up to that period, the, the debt crisis and blood bankers is really focusing on you know what happened to the money, and setting up the the next chapter, which was you know what happened in Russia and China. Yeah. Why do we end up with Russia and China having become you know plutocracies? Um, Jim, j just to take me back to to the nuts and bolts of the Philippines. So you explained that the the difference between say a corporation can go bankrupt but a but a country can't you know they they're always on the hook for the money it explains the incentive why you might want to lend to that nation but you still want to return right so could you explain to us why even though billions and billions of dollars and euros and francs and all the rest are going into the philippines they're not actually being turned into any sort of productive asset that can then repay that loan instead the money is being wired into a someone's personal account so the economics of that doesn't make sense. Could you explain still why people are and did uh, going to lend to these developing nations, even though they're not turning out something on the other side that's repaying the, the loan itself? It seems like a well, broken I think it, it, You know, dynamic. this is a little bit of a complicated story about the way banks work. And uh, it's not as if no banks lost money by lending to developing countries. They, they did in, in some cases like, Citibank, they had uh, close calls and JP Morgan at the end of the uh, end of the 80s, uh, they were, you know, in trouble, but they had friends in Washington to bail them out. That was part of the story. So part of the story here is that, uh, you know, uh, the lending manager who's at Citibank for Mexico uh, is never going to have history catch up with him if he makes uh, some bad loan and then he moves on to uh, you know, the next uh, job because he's gotten, uh, his metrics are attractive. You know, he's made, uh, he has a huge lending portfolio. Um, and by the way, he's producing an awful lot of income for the private bank uh, who have the finance minister as a client. You know, and that's, uh, that's just a, an absolute reality. It's, uh, there's all kinds of people within the banking uh, institutions that profited from uh, lousy loans and, and private banking, uh, who, you know, history never caught up with them and said, well, by the way, those loans never, uh, those never were productive. Uh, those funds Late lack stolen. of skin in the game. Yeah. So there was no, you know, there was kind of impunity, institutional impunity for at the kind of the level of individuals within these institutions. Um, I think the other thing is that this, this chronic problem of government guarantees and of bailouts uh, has been a kind of a moral hazard that we've never solved. Um, and we saw that in the 2008 financial crisis where there were huge bailouts to uh, U.S. financial institutions. And you know, most of the people who were involved in, those, in, in the chicanery that led to the mortgage crisis. I mean, what happened in 2008 was kind of this third world lending behavior of institutional irresponsibility 
irresponsible corporate lending came back to haunt us in, you know, importing this very same kind of lending practices uh, to the United States with the mortgage crisis. I mean, there are all kinds of variations on the details and uh, they were lending to housing projects and real estate projects that were, uh, you know, poorly conceived and on a much larger scale than the, uh, than the developing uh, world crisis. But that was the precedent for it. They're basically the same kind of institutional responsibility. Banking is a problem for capitalism. There's a central uh, issue with banks. Banks have uh, enormous political influence. Uh, they have, they're very hard to regulate and they keep on making mistakes in, on a massive level, sort of en, en masse <laughs> at once. So every 10 years or so, you have these whopping crises, either in developing countries or the first world. Um, you know, part of the, part of the deal with the, you know, the, uh, the late 90s in the United States, we became deregulators. Um, and we allowed the banks to come home and to do many of the same things they were doing in, in third world countries uh, in the United States and getting away with it. So, you know, there is this problem with bank regulation. Uh, there's this kind of systemic problem for capitalism. Uh, it's nothing new. It goes back to at least the 18th, <laughs> 18th century. And, uh, you know, it's still with us now. I was struck by the fact in the case of the Philippines that, uh, you know, another big player in the late 90s uh, was Timothy Geithner, who ended up as Treasury Secretary. He was in charge of the, you know, sort of at that point in the IMF, he was working uh, in Asia, uh, when they had the 1998 crisis in Indonesia, uh, which affected all uh, Southeast Asian uh, countries. So you had another debt crisis, again due, in the case of Indonesia, to a dictatorship, uh, Suharto, Su Sukarno, Suharto, Suharto, who, um, you know, just got away with all kinds of lousy lending to himself. The World Bank, you know, to this day has not accounted for uh, the, the bad lending that they made in that situation. Mm. I, I, I interviewed, it's another case that I was never able to, uh, you know, to write about, you know, these, there's just so many hours in the day, but <laughs> Indonesia is yet another case, a similar thing where, you know, the world bank uh, lending officers knew that at least half of the loans that they were making uh, to, especially to the banking sector, we're going into uh, the general's family's um, mm. friendly banks, and they were making loans to themselves. Uh, you know, well, we know where that ends. Uh, and that was a, a major uh, sort of theme of the, of the Indonesian and, and that's crisis in 1998. A recurrent theme here is this sort of insider trading, if you mm. will, that goes the on corruption. in the banking. Corruption. And it's not just the, again, it's not the, just the indigenous, you know, kind of corrupt uh, Filipinos or the corrupt Indonesians. It's these Western institutions that we are, you know, sort of oh, that yeah. are depending on us to have laws that work and an independent courts and all of their, you know, the, the institutions they take for granted here. Uh, basically uh, abusing the privilege by going off to strange places and making lousy loans.
And that's, yeah. you know, sort of the, the, the kind of the, the generic responsibility the world system has for the, the fate of some of these, of these developing countries that are still struggling with the consequences to this day. Yeah. So, so the corruption from the private banking side of things, the sort of amoral approach to where your money is going is understandable just from the incentives level. I'm making more money for my institution. I get promoted myself, whatever. But the same sort of incentives don't make sense from the IMF and the World Bank perspective, unless you assume a similar amorality in the incentives. Mm. Could you explain, is it just explicable that easily that the same incentives exist for the private banks as they do the IMF and the World Bank, or, or is there more to it? Well, the World Bank, uh, you know, let's distinguish the World Bank from the IMF a little bit here. The IMF's charter is to kind of deal with short-term financial crises. Now, they have, in the case of countries like Argentina, they have a pattern of sort of going in heavy and bailing out generally the conservative regimes. <laughs> Um, and then getting stuck with a whole lot of debt. But, uh, you know, in general, they're dealing with more short-term, you know, sort of balance of payments uh, crises. Um, they are, however, present at the table in many of these situations where they're seeing uh, the problems gather. And so in the Philippines, there's a, uh, I was told about this instance where, uh, you know, the, the IMF uh, representative in Manila had known all about the chicanery that was going on with Marcos. Um, and at a certain point, there was a, a meeting in which there was a, a blackboard was busted and uh, he was fired uh, summarily. But, you know, in, in general, the, the, the World Bank has a different charter in, in these countries. It's to finance longer term projects. Uh, and to provide longer-term lending at uh, basically subsidized rates um, to stimulate development. Um, it really got going, if you look at the history of the bank, during the Cold War. And so, you know, people like Robert McNamara led the bank for a long time uh, after he was Secretary of Defense in the United States. Um, and he, his, you know, sort of explicit mission was to provide uh, developing countries with the kind of um, future that didn't involve communism. So it was kind of an explicit, almost explicit uh, uh, charter on his, on, on our part to help uh, shore up regimes that were non-communist around the planet. So some of the biggest lenders uh, or sort of borrowers in that period were countries uh, that, uh, you know, were, were on that path of, uh, non-communist uh, development, whether it was dictatorship or not. So Brazil, for example, was a major borrower uh, from the World Bank for a long period of time. Uh, Philippines was one of the largest borrowers from the World Bank. Uh, you know, you had, they were viewed as, you know, basically an American kind of colony in Southeast Asia. Um, so, you know, there, I think the, the question of whether World Bank uh, executives would have different incentives than private bankers, a lot of them are the same people. I mean, there's a lot of road, <laughs> a lot of re revolving doors in right, yeah. institutions. People come and go from the same, you know, so if you want to become uh, chief landing officer of the World Bank for you know, a period of time or 
the IFC is another major player here. You have um, a certain amount of influence just from that phenomenon. Yeah. But I think there's, there, there are, there are private, you know, ultimately the world bank has, uh, has to sell its bonds. And so it has incentives to, uh, you know, to sort of maximize profits just in the way that private institutions do. Uh, but it also gets basically a, a pass on, on how many of these projects turn out. Yeah. I think if we, if we actually did a thorough audit of all the projects the World Bank has been involved in, I think the results would be pretty mixed. So I guess that brings us kind of to the end of the, the 80s. We have, you know, the cases of Argentina is an interesting one. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, that... The, the, there are so many. If, if you wouldn't mind, I, I just want to ask one before we leave the Philippines. Yeah. Just one last one from yeah. the Philippines. Yeah. Um, I, I was in correspondence with Nicholas Shackson, a comrade right. and uh, and colleague of yours at the Tax right. Justice Network, an author yeah. of Treasure Islands. Um, yes. Another very prominent voice um, on tax havens yeah. and tax avoidance. And I yeah, uh, said, terrific. what should I ask Jim? And he said, many, <laughs> uh, there's a lot of interesting things. Um, mm -hmm. But he said specifically, ask him about the poisoned scrambled eggs. Uh, he thinks it was in the Philippines. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, this brings back the memory of how I actually got the story. I mean, I had gotten all this data from the Central Bank of the Philippines. It had been lying around, in the, as far as I could tell, on the warehouse floor, and nobody had analyzed it. Um, but it was uncorroborated, and I, and I needed someone to say, yeah, this is what happened. Um, and so uh, I went back to Manny Hanny, where Manufacturers Hammer Hanover had been this large syndicating bank to the Philippines. And uh, they ultimately got, I think, acquired by Chemical Bank, and then Chemical Bank got acquired by J.P. Morgan and so forth. So they're no longer around. But um, at that point, they still had uh, economists who had worked in the Philippines on the financial crises. And I located uh, the guy who, when the Philippines basically went belly up in 1984, uh, had gone to Manila. And uh, he said, he told me that for one week during that period, he had access to two sets of books. He had access to the loans that had come in uh, from the New York banks to the central bank. And he had the central bank's books showing what they had done uh, with the money. And he said he added up the two sets of numbers and there was a discrepancy of $7 billion. And the discrepancy was accounted for by the fact that they had transferred a lot of money offshore to Switzerland. Yep. And so at the end of this period, he said, suddenly someone from the central bank realized that he as the outside auditor had seen this and came into the room and shut down the operation the next morning, he was sent home, and he got on a flight from the Philippines and ended up uh, in an emergency ward in Seattle, having been poisoned on the plane. Um, and so I have, I have that, that story on tape somewhere. But uh, yeah, this young economist had nearly lost his life. Um, I believed him. I never, you know, did I go uh, try to confirm all this? No. I mean, <laughs> Yeah, it's a uh, it's 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 almost too incredible uh, story, but it's certainly consistent with what I found, which was this huge discrepancy in, in the loans that the Philippines had booked. And uh, 
did people go after you as well? Because you're trying to turn over uh, leaves that expose a lot of people's uh, crimes, right? Uh, how often did you feel physically threatened throughout the research for this book? You know, I, I've been threatened uh, over the phone as senior vice president for uh, J.P. Morgan um, that I write about in uh, the chapter on Brazil uh, basically threatened to kill me. Uh, he's no longer, no longer with us, but, you know, that's uh, nothing to do with me. Um, he... Um, you know, that was an example. I didn't take that too seriously, although he was a hot-headed kind of guy. Uh, right. He had been involved in all kinds of, uh, we could talk about, that's a great story, actually. But uh, uh, in the case of Panama, um, we haven't talked about that episode. I was uh, uh, in Panama in 1987 during a period in which um, uh, General Noriega was still in power. And he, of course, we know now that he was deeply involved in drug trafficking uh, with the Colombian cartel, some, uh, some parts of it. And uh, he had an airline called Inair, I-N-A-I-R. Um, and his partner in the airline was a guy named Ricardo Bolanic, who was a Colombian and lived in Panama City. Um, and so, you know, this is a period of growing opposition to the Panamanian, to the, to the dictatorship. Um, so someone came forward uh, who was a, uh, a, uh, a lawyer uh, with the opposition, I thought, and uh, offered me, uh, he said he has his, his brother-in-law was a cargo manager at Inair. And... Um, uh, he offered me uh, uh, Noriega's uh, phone records for three years. Um, and so I got those phone records and uh, uh, they showed all of these calls to, you know, Colombians, uh, also quite a few interesting calls to Washington, D.C. Um, so that raised a lot of questions. And I was very sensitive about having these phone records in my possession. They mm. ended up being used in the trial of General Noriega. Uh, I, you know, about three years later, I was uh, uh, working at a corporate job up at Lotus, and uh, these two DEA agents came to my office and had me validate the trail of evidence mm -hmm. uh, for use in this trial. It was one of the key uh, pieces of evidence in his trial and conviction. Um, but anyway, to finish the story in Panama, I, I, at, during that period, I got into my head to investigate this murder that had gone on in Panama of a, of a health minister named Hugo Spadafora. Spadafora was a young guy who had been, uh, first of all, under Torrios and then under Noriega had been a, a very progressive kind of health minister and had, you know, f done things like fought in Africa with Che Guevara and stuff like that, very progressive. And he thought, in, revolutionary uh, revolutionary kind of hero and he found out first more more than before anybody did that noriega was involved in all this drug trafficking I mean, mm -hmm. basically in was sending between 1984 and 87 they were sending a ton of co cocaine every month 
on Sanyo refrigerators. Wow. Uh, packed into commercial their flights. airline uh, to, uh, to Miami, sending it right up the middle. Yep. They weren't, and you know, they would get to the airport, they would offload it on the side of the airstrip, and then they would fly on. Now, this could not have happened without complicity uh, from, uh, you know, U.S. authorities. It just simply could not have happened without that. And Spotafora thought. I mean, it does, does it have to be national authorities? Couldn't it just be airport authorities? I doubt it. I really don't think that they could have said over this long-term period, a ton of cocaine every month, uh, you know, I, I, th I think what we, you know, and I didn't ever track that aspect of it down. Um, mm. But uh, I mean, there's plenty of stuff to look at here if we can go back and check the historical records, but basically um, Bolonic was later tried and, uh, and convicted. The, um, you know, the point about Spotafora was that he thought kind of reasonable enough that, you know, surely the U.S. government would love to hear about this. Mm -hmm. And the DEA, you know, I should go to San Jose. So he decided he would have a meeting with the DEA in San Jose. Um, unfortunately, there was a CIA agent in the room. And what you learn about the U.S. government, it's not a monolith. You know, the CIA was backing Noriega. Uh, the DEA was uh, basically in a, in a big conflict with the CIA throughout that period. Um, and so uh, somebody in that room picked up the phone and called Noriega. And when Spotafora came back to the, to the border uh, in uh, Cherokee, he was picked up and killed. Not just killed, he was butchered left in a body bag. Uh, so I decided when I was there in 87 that I would investigate this murder. This is while Noriega was still in power because I was, you know, pretty upset about having discovered all this. Um, and so the attorney for the family, Spotify family and I flew out to Cherokee and spent some, you know, tense nights in a, I'll never forget the rainstorms out there. <laughs> Where's Cherokee? Hotel. This is in Panama as well. Cherokee is this Cherokee province uh, where the murder occurred. You know, it's uh, you know there's a there's a road from San Jose to uh, Panama that goes through that area, and we actually succeeded in finding some of the military people who were involved in you know sort of cleaning up after the the murder. They, they gave us some interesting information. I get on the plane back to Panama City. And I'm getting off the plane, and there's three, three plainclothes policemen asking, are you Jim Henry? And uh, I said, yep. And I, I guess at that age, I was pretty uh, much more nimble than I am now. Uh, I kind of uh, OJ'd around them and uh, really? out of the airport into the streets of Panama City got back to my hotel, grabbed everything as fast as I could. And I showed up at a, a, a Silvana Paternoster, who I mentioned earlier, her uh, father had been a Colombian diplomat in Panama City. Uh, and she had a lot of friends there. So I showed up at the, uh, uninvited uh, at 
in the apartment of one of them and said, I gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta hide me out. Here's the situation. <laughs> they were not pleased uh, to see me, but uh, anyway, for a couple of days there, there was touch and go. And then finally I got uh, uh, escorted to the airport by a guy who was a legislator. He got me through customs and got on a plane, got out of there. But uh, I mean, Jim, that's why. It was at the time, you know, it was sort of like one step after another, you know, what do we do next? Mm. Um, It wasn't very well thought out. It certainly wasn't very rational, but uh, I think sometimes you get taken with the story and you just want to see it done. And um, do you think those three plainclothes police officers posed uh, a lethal threat to you or it was just to intimidate? Well, if I'd been, if I'd been jailed in Panama and they put you in a, in a cell with a, you know, an AIDS victim. Uh, I mean, you can, right. there's a lot of nasty ways to go. Um, <laughs> that's a nasty way to go. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, it's not, uh, but I, I wouldn't have trusted Nate Noriega's jails to be very hospitable, even to yeah. an American at that point. But, you know, I may be exaggerating. I'm not trying to, you know, I, this is, this story has never been about me. And that's why I've really never talked about all this stuff because you know, it's really a focus on the story as mm. opposed to, you know, the journalist and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, I mean, but I've had some interesting encounters that I think may be of value to younger journalists who want to, you know, sort of follow this path and say, you know, what are the things that work? What are the things that are, uh, you know, worth looking at? And, and what's the importance of getting out mm. of the office? Something that fascinates me about your story is that you've gone, you're an exceptional student, you've gotten um, scholarships all the way through Harvard, law degree, economics degree, postgraduate, chief economist at McKinsey. I mean, and this is, I think, before you're 30 or just as you're 30. I mean, you, 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 you have the golden resume to go and take whatever job you like, yet you, uh, you, know, you go off and say no to loads of money and power and influence and all of that and and you know go into latin america and investigate capital flight so like that's so fascinating can you explain how you reflect on that and at the time what what drove you to make that sort of decision well i'd say it's a little more complicated than that you know i kept bouncing back and forth between corporate and uh and business activities and this investigative stuff. So uh, the sequence was, you know, McKinsey, and then I went, uh, worked at Lotus uh, Development with in the software industry. And then I, in the mid nineties, just to survive, you know, you can't investigative journalism of this kind, you know, I mean, uh, Samuel Johnson once said, no one but a fool <laughs> writes but for money. Well, this, this was everything but, but lucrative. You know, it was, it was fascinating. It was, you know, captivating. But, uh, it, you know, it's, you can't survive and have a family based on, you know, uh, writing three or $4,000 of articles a month uh, for, you know, the New Republic. So um, I kept bouncing back and forth. And I had my own consulting firm in the 90s. And and that did very well because I was just focusing on technology and I worked for AT&T Bell Labs. And so I was fortunate enough to have this life preserver that could keep, right. you know. I mean, you have the gold resume, afloat. like you can always keep step back afloat. into it. And I, I could keep doing that stuff forever. 
uh, on technology and strategy and, and, and lately, you know, consulting to uh, companies building smart grids. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a definitely, I mean, one of the themes is here that, you know, if you're just an investigative journalist all your life, you end up being hostage to uh, publishing firms or newspapers that may have themselves a, a kind of a lot of t trouble and a lot and a hard time supporting you. And you may have all kinds of limitations on the kind of work you can do then. So there's something great about being independent and a kind of a freelance journalist and writing for lots of places creatively. And, you know, so if you can afford to do kind of a dual career thing, uh, that's what I found in my case, you know, was, mm -hmm. was successful. But the, the, the idea about values was, is, is, a, is, a, is an interesting one. I'm not sure I fully understand this thing. I think you know, the um, uh, psychologist Carl Jung has an uh, uh, interesting um, discussion of how when he became 30, 35, 35, I think was the age he pointed to, there was something called metatonia in which you basically say, okay, I've done, you know, a successful family. I've got a uh, career. I've done, you know, I've succeeded to that extent and that's sort of under my belt. But now I have to find my soul. And now I've, it's up to me to, uh, to discover what I'm really to get into the path of individuation for, to do. And, and you find that at that point, the individuation that you are looking for meaning and in a way that you, you, you weren't before. Now, a lot of people don't get there and they, they have all kinds of trouble uh, on that way. But if you're able, fortunate enough to get into a situation where you have some choice, then uh, this sense of um, responsibility, I think sometimes, uh, you know, takes over. And, uh, and, you, and you look for callings, so you find things that maybe in medicine, maybe in, in, in many other fields, but in my case, it was journalism. And specifically uncovering a bunch of corrupt money. You, you, you saw a higher calling in that because you had such a specific set of skills that would be able to actually make that possible. Well, I think that's part of it. You know, the economics, the law, uh, these are useful skills, the McKinsey. background and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But it was also, you know, there's not, uh, it's an unusual intersection of, 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 of know-how. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's also just, you know, the, the stories just kept on coming. So once you open this valve, it was like uh, the floodgates. Uh, it was hard to say no. Each one was different, you know. So every, every story... Uh, uh, turned out to be fascinating. Brazil is a great example. I, I must have been to Brazil about uh, 15 times mm -hmm. and, um, you know, had some incredible luck just meeting a private banker for a big drug dealer in Brazil on the plane going down, uh, getting introduced to, you know, that whole network of, of people. Yeah. And Your chapter in Brazil is my favorite from the book. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, the, the, uh, you know, we, we, we ended up going to a place in Bahia, which is on the northeast coast of Bahia. And there was a hotel uh, called the Hotel Ensenada. Um, and uh, I, uh, 
you know, talking to the uh, hotel manager there, we were able to get, uh, again, phone records. I love phone records. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with the cell phone is that they're, they're harder to get. But uh, this hotel had been the, the kind of the meeting place, the regular watering hole uh, for this very influential uh, J.P. Morgan banker who'd basically run a kind of racket with leading Brazilian officials for a decade in which there was, they were, they were making loans to mm-hmm. uh, finance the uh, imports of uh, Libyan tanks from Gaddafi or to selling tanks to Gaddafi. Um, illegal Brazilian loans. tanks? They were, they're Brazilian tanks. They're sold by the big yeah. Brazilian arms company. Uh, at a time when that was forbidden, um, and they were splitting commissions, and the commissions were ending up. Uh, and this is another story where you know I, I didn't actually get to the end of this uh, story until 2003, when I found out uh, indirectly that all the money had been stashed in this Hamburg bank uh, by Gebauer and these Brazilian officials. So you can imagine these officials coming together every month or two in this obscure hotel in Ensenada, and they thought they were safe. Well, not for yeah. me, because I, I actually traveled to Bahia, got the phone records, yeah. and there they were. Brazil um, seems to be, of all the developing nations in the 80s and 90s, the most egregiously abused. Um, this is just going off what uh, you've written in that book. I don't have other sort of I don't have a wider knowledge informing that um, assumption, but just from the book. And I, I, I'd like to introduce Brazil just via um, something you wrote in the chapter, the beginning of the chapter, um, as a way for you to explain to us what a debt elephant is and hopefully further our understanding of what is actually happening in blood bankers. What are you talking about? What is this corruption and capital flight? So if you'll allow me just to uh, read yeah. a short passage. Um, almost everywhere one goes to research the history of the development crisis one hears a similar tale an official visits his friend an official of another country who has an impressive estate fancy cars and a collection of polo ponies how did you get so rich he confidentially asks i will show you he says in response he takes his friend on a drive to a dam see that project 50 percent later viewing an even more impressive estate uh, he's asked, how did you get so rich? He says, I will show you. And then they take a drive to a river where a major dam was supposed to have been built. You see that dam, the first official says, pointing to a completely unobstructed river, so there is no dam, 100%. As Brazil's finance minister, Mario Enrique Simonson once remarked, there were many cases in, what, in which such 100% commissions might actually have been less wasteful than the monstrosities that were in fact constructed. The development crisis is not an abstraction. The carnage is everywhere. So take the Balbina Hydro Project in Brazil as an example that you, that you write about. And can you explain it as this archetypal debt elephant? Yeah, well, I guess um, let me try to find that because I'll never do justice to the details of it. Balbina is this incredible dam. For example, Balbina, a 250-megawatt hydro dam on the river Uatami near Manaus in the middle of the Amazon River Basin, 
was designed for Electro Norte, the federal power company in the Amazon, by Andrade Gutierrez, another influential Brazilian construction firm. Quite coincidentally, Andrade Gutierrez also built a house in Teresopolis, uh, it's a, a city in, uh, in Brazil, for President General Geisel and an equestrian center in Brasilia for his successor, President Joao Figueiredo. Balbina's five turbines were supplied by uh, a French company, Nerpi, Nerpic, and financed with French export credits. Just coincidentally, former French Prime Minister Giscard d'Estaing's family owned a stake in the company Nerpic, and his cousin headed France's export credit agency. Uh, originally priced at 383 million, Balbina's actual price tag turned out to be nearly 800 mil to exceed 800 million dollars. Even if it had worked as advertised, that would have made Balbina's electricity the most expensive in Brazil up to that point. But Balbina was so poorly designed that when its artificial lake started filling up in 1987, the water just kept on spreading. Eventually, it flooded more than 2,000 square miles, including an Indian reserve. The inhabitants, the Waimiri and Atarari tribes, had to be relocated by force. The lake was also not logged beforehand, so it became impossible to navigate because of all the submerged trees. At least a dozen exotic animal and fish species were wiped out, and the lake will not be habitable by fish or wildlife anytime soon because of all the acid gas produced by the trees. Indeed, the rotting trees produce 3 million tons of methane every year, up to 28 times the output of greenhouse gases from an equivalent coal-fired plant. In 1988, Electro Norte also discovered that Lago del, del, del Balbina's water level was so low that the lake would never reach its designed output unless another 700 million was spent to dam another river and destroy another Indian reserve. So, so the dam's output was now just 112 mega, megawatts, half of the original design, and less than 1 16th power of the Tukuri Hydro Dam, which flooded 200 fewer square miles. So that's a monstrosity. Uh, it was pretty typical of these kinds of uh, dams in particular. Like scarily typical. There were so many of those examples, hundreds even. Oh, yeah. I mean, dams uh, were just one category of these things. And I say this as, you know, my, grand, my grandfather, Frank Henry, uh, built the first concrete dam on the Hudson River in the 1890s. And so, you know, it was a concrete dam. Mm. Um, uh, dams can be, uh, you know, useful, but uh, these projects were so poorly designed and crafted that they are, you know, routinely uh, rife with not only um, overpricing, Mm -hmm. um, we saw that recently and there's a, another Brazilian construction company that's been uh, implicated in corruption all over uh, Latin America uh, in the last decade or so. And, yeah, uh, weren't they building roads literally in the middle of nowhere that weren't even connecting to towns and the former yeah. female president was involved? It's a, just pure yes. corruption. It's more of yeah. the same of what you just read. Right. Exactly. Well, the Brazilian construction industry is just a, a you know, rife with this kind of uh, 
anti-corruption, and it was extremely influential politically. When I was there in 1989, um, I uh, followed uh, the leading candidate for president uh, around. Um, his, his campaign was just going, it was Lula. And it was the first time he'd run for president. He was head of the mine workers union, of, of, the, of the metal workers union, and uh, had lost uh, uh, one of the fingers on his left hand. So he was quite a character. And I went all over um, the, the sugar plantations outside of Sao Paulo with Lula on an election uh, march uh, that he was going on. Um, I was, you know, that was an, an eye-opening episode because it, it, uh, the, the reason he did not win that time was because about two weeks before the election, uh, the, um, the media in Brazil, which is heavily influenced by moneyed interest, especially O Global, um, the big uh, uh, conglomerate there, um, put out a story about him having fathered a child by a woman out of wedlock. And in Brazil, that was, uh, you know, anathema. And, uh, you know, they sunk his election chances to zero. And the fellow they elected uh, turned out to be an enormous crook. <laughs> so um, that was just eye-opening. Lula came back and became president of Brazil and in the 2000s and is right now being considered again if we can get rid of Bolsonaro who is um, you know threatening to stage a coup as of today in Brazil there's an enormous yeah. uh, fear no, that they're trying good, to not a good force on Latin yeah. America but politics. if if Lula comes back into power I mean I think he will be you know he he became somewhat uh, uh, influenced by this by these these powers around him uh, during his last term in law, but he was a relatively good um, president, as as Brazilian presidents go. Something mm. certainly nothing uh, like. Uh, but um, can, can you describe why that Balbina example is the archetypal debt elephant? Yeah, well, I think you end up with a, a a project that's not only wasteful and doesn't perform; it's positively harmful. Mm. And it creates all kinds of economic externalities, negative effects, mm -hmm. and and is in that sense, uh, you know, the, it's kind of unfair to elephants. Really, I mean, elephants are wonderful creatures. And if you spend any time <laughs> around them, they're they're yeah, they're you're branding elephants badly. You could have called them debt dragons. Debt dragon, something something to indicate that they're basically you know up to no good. Um, mm -hmm. And so this this project had so many negative aspects to it. I mean, it enriched people who just went on to you know do lousy other things, other lousy, lousy projects. Uh, politicians who didn't deserve to to be in power. It enriched companies that were just thoroughly. Mm -hmm. Odebrecht was the firm that I, I was. Yeah, yeah, that was another remember. interesting that's, part that's of that. That's the one. And Odebrecht was one. It was involved in this project, and they yeah. were you know they've been a big player in the over the last 50 years in brazil in terms of creating this kind of cartel uh that can, has a lot of influence in, in congress um so you know i mean i've i've had so many uh disappointing experiences in brazil that it's sort of heartbreaking to see what yeah i can imagine happened to the country and uh you know i briefly got involved in a 
in a uh, an attempt to get a telecommunications uh, company off the ground in the mid '90s, and we actually had a lot of success uh, in getting that done and raised a bunch of money for it. And then all of a sudden, um, our partner in Brazil turned out to be a complete crook, which should have been no surprise to me. Uh, but hope springs eternal. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps, um, um, perhaps I'll I'll explain why I thought that uh, particular Balbina example was so good at framing what the entire book was about, and then you please pick apart my understanding yeah. of it to say whether it's accurate or not. Mm-hmm. But in line in line with the narrative without the CIA conspiracy that confessions of an economic hitman um, uh, tells it's this story of European and American engineering and construction firms, American finance coming into town, promising all of the good um, uh, positive externalities of building this hydro dam, because you're going to create value for your local community. You as the political leader are going to get clout. You're also going to get a nice cut of money on the side. And it's going to end up creating a bunch of economic value that you'll be able to then repay our loans. So we're going to be made whole as well. And we can add you to our portfolio of successful uh, developments in developing nations. And it all is just, that's all this nice wrapping that it's all presented as, you know, and the fancy businessman comes in who is John Perkins in this case, and he can deliver with the professionalism. Look at these, look at these reports my engineers have put up. Look at these other um, projects we've done beforehand. And by the way, we're going to take you to the nicest restaurant in town. And then eventually it starts going. And then under the wrapping, there's like an understanding that you're going to take most of this money. You're okay with that. You also know that we're just here to also create a lot of value for ourselves. And you end up with this just terrible consequence where you have a hydro dam that actually produces more negative impacts than it does good impacts. It would actually have been better off to have just taken that money and sunk it down the hole instead of building something there at all. And none of the money is trickled down into the local economy or the broader economy at all. It's siphoned off to a number of people. It's just yeah. bad the whole way down. And this, from my understanding of reading project after project that you uncover throughout the book, just continually tells that story again and again. So, well, yeah. And I think that that story is, you know, what we're living today in with the Afghanistan experience. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the numbers vary in terms of how much we actually spent in Afghanistan. But I guess a conservative estimate is that at least $140 billion went into uh, so-called aid money that was supposed to go toward development. Um, Didn't they say $2 trillion over 20 years? Well, there, there are numbers, a you know, a lot of that go, goes to the military. And so a lot of it goes to military spending. And I think that was one of the problems with the the, the structure there. We had a kind of a military um, approach to that. Um, but, you know, that, I mean, there are a number of lessons to be learned here. We have had successful examples of nation building um, by the U.S. Uh, government and by its NATO allies. I mean, we have, first of all, Europe, uh, <laughs> after the end of World War II, and, and Japan are, are successful examples of nation building. I think that they would, you know, now, what they seemed to have been dependent upon was the fact that we could uh, get away with um, 
a fair amount of direct administration during this period, to the extent that we, uh, we never tried to uh, implement in places like Iraq or Af Afghanistan. There was this, uh, I think, uh, infectious uh, kind of ideology that we had discovered between the, the early 50s uh, and the late, uh, you know, 1990s, uh, which was neoliberalism and the emphasis on private sector development and private uh, companies being the engines of growth. And so, you know, I, I knew the guy who was in charge of the privatization program in Iraq. He had been at McKinsey and Company. He knew, knew nothing about Iraq. Um, but he did know a, a lot about making money in a developing country with venture capital. And, you know, you buy the scarce stuff and you kind of sell it back to them. So there was this, uh, uh, I say, ideal sort of romantic view of market uh, develop market-led development that uh, infected a lot of these efforts. Uh, it, you know, was ideology that was touted by the World Bank and the, the IMF, um, other multilateral development banks, uh, you know, in favor of creating stock markets in these places and privatizing everything in sight. Uh, it turned out in many cases just to be a failure, but it complemented this sort of emphasis on private contractors moving in, making a lot of money, uh, no one having responsibility for the results, private banks and, and the World Bank sort of making a lot of loans. And, uh, you know, sort of all that, that kind of private sector oriented um, sort of, I think, um, fan, really kind of, uh, kind of idealized version of what capitalism is all about. Capitalism has always succeeded most, it turns out, when there's a very strong state. And that was true in the United States as well. State-led uh, institutions that were able to uh, be the icebreaker for, mm. for uh, development. In the cases like Brazil and Mexico and Argentina, and, you know, on and on you see, and Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, you see very weak states the theme is that the state has to get out of the way and, right. uh, and, and we have to decentralize and we have to have, uh, you know, private actors take the, take the lead. That's not, that's not what happened in Japan. You know, it's not what happened in the United States. Uh, most of the successful development cases that we have for, you know, Western capitalist countries had a very strong comp component of state-led growth. And that's certainly... Mm -hmm was the case in Japan and Germany, uh, France, uh, even the UK. And I, you know, I think that we, we basically failed to learn the lessons of our own history and the history of developing country after developing country. When you look up close at what's going on, you find these, you know, these failed states really. So I wanted to ask you about the following, Jim. You started off by saying, um, your first bit of investigative journalism was looking at the underground economy of the United States saying, where are these hundred dollar bills? Um, how many of them are in circulation, but I've never seen one yeah. before. Mexico is a country that is 
extremely close to my heart. Famously, and I don't know how true this is, but famously the Mexican underground economy, which is just to say the cash economy that isn't recognized as productive output via the GDP figures, could be as big as their actual economy, which is recognized. On the surface, what are the implications of that? When you have um, a person whose entire life runs through the handing and giving out of cash, uh, they never produce taxable receipts for the government to then be able to reinvest into the public utility that they're consuming in their town, the roads, the access to the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, what your thoughts were on the implications of an underground economy and if you could make the comparison with my nation I'm in right now, Sweden, which is cashless, and Mexico, which is only cash. Yeah. Well, Mexico is a favorite topic of mine. I mean, uh, you know, they say uh, <laughs> I mean, Mexico's history with the United States has been uh, kind of a miserable experience of being next door to a greedy <laughs> superpower. Um, expanding slave states and uh, uh, the Texans, you know, sort of uh, remember uh, Robert Duvall's line about Texans, you know, uh, the, uh, the worst white people in the world. <laughs> Sorry. But um, no, I mean, Mexico um, suffered from uh, too much of its neighbor over time. And that continues to have shown up. Um, I was, uh, you know, sort of very interested in, in the outflows of uh, money from the, the uh, uh, Mexican government in the early 80s when they had a fairly corrupt uh, uh, president. Uh, and I thought that he would have established the record for corruption. Um, uh, but then the, his successor, Salinas, came to power by virtue of a rigged election. Um, in the in the mid 80s in which Famously the United depicted States, in narcos as well i just want to say yeah on the side and, and so you know the whole story about all that um what narcos doesn't really tell you about was this uh you know we we mentioned my the, the fellow i was looking at in uh, in panama mm. um but there was also uh this dea agent uh, kiki camarena mm -hmm. who was tortured uh, to death in 1985 um and it's sort of a similar kind of story because I think my hypothesis was that a lot of this drug money was ending up being used by the Contras and by the CIA to finance the drug wars um, and to, uh, to, to, to finance the, the, uh, the Contras in Nicaragua. I'd first come across those in 1984 when I made a film in Honduras um, about land reform. And I flew down there not knowing anything about uh, the Iran-Contra business or the Contra army that we were putting together. But it turned out that Honduras, which is a poor little country in the middle of Central America, was a staging ground for the, the U.S.-backed uh, uh, army that was invading Nicaragua. Uh, and a lot of this had been paid for by drug money. Um, Camarena was this DEA agent who was active in Mexico and basically was uh, involved in identifying the, uh, some of the connections in the hierarchy of the Mexican government um, with respect to uh, the cartels at that point. 
Um, and he was tortured to death. And the reason that he was tortured was because uh, they were very concerned to find out what exactly the DEA knew about his high-level connections uh, with the Mexican government, about the cartel's high-level connections with the Mexican government, uh, with the Contras, and with the CIA. And it, it turns out that there's a lot of evidence that one of the agents who was involved in uh, in the torture sessions, actually, was a fellow named Felix Rodriguez, who was a longtime CIA agent, uh, is still wandering around Miami as we speak, uh, but had a, a long-time career for the CIA with respect to Latin America. Uh, we don't really know everything that Rodriguez has been involved in, but he was clearly present, according to three different witnesses, um, at these torture sessions where this DEA... Now, the CIA conspiracy. And this is very consistent with my experience with uh, Spadafora in, in San Jose, you know, that he was basically uh, sacrificed by virtue of a phone call from the CIA agent, uh, whose name I have, um, to, uh, to Noriega. So, you know, these are um, disturbing patterns of events. They indicate that it's more, again, than just Mexico at stake here. It's uh, this relationship with the world system and with the, with the good neighbors to the north uh, that have helped to um, perpetuate these inequalities. Anyway, the, the, um, <clears throat> the election in 1987, which was the first time that we had a chance to really elect an independent um, left-wing uh, president in Mexico was, um, was basically stolen by Salinas, who later ended up on the board of the Wall Street Journal. Um, he's back in Mexico living today, has a lot of influence there. Uh, and his brother turned out to be a major drug trafficker. And you know, as, as Narcos uh, tells the story about Salinas in some, in some detail, but um, you know, to this day, we have this very, very problematic um, situation in Mexico where the, the underground economy is kind of the least of the problems. I mean, there, yes, the underground economy makes it difficult to tax and to regulate and uh, people get used to living off the books and uh, the state is weak, uh, it's hard, has a hard time uh, acting independent of the private sector or you know, having any control over it. There are very successful and able companies in Mexico. I mean, I've, I've worked for a couple of them, but, um, you know, companies like Cemex, uh, where, you know, the, the, the leading cement company in Mexico, yeah, yeah. very, very profitable and successful company, very well managed. Um, the, um, one of my uh, uh, colleagues is a fellow named Fernando Flores, who is Salvador Allende's Minister of Finance. And he and I had a project uh, working for Cemex. I worked with a team of people that he, uh, he was working with on um, business design problems and, and the problem of managing large enterprises after he Spent four years in jail in uh, Pinochet's prisons. He came to the United States, took a PhD in Flores. You know, he's now a, a senator back in Chile. But 
um, we worked in, you know, for these outstanding Mexican companies. When, when, we, when we showed up uh, at Aero Mexico, um, they were late uh, with their planes 98% of the time. <laughs> so Fernando stood up in front of the entire management team and said, the problem with you guys is you're all bullshitting each other. You know, nobody's telling the truth in this organization. So I'm going to give you permission to tell the truth. <laughs> so stop bullshitting each other. And that, you know, that, uh, I mean, that is a, was a classic example of where you could make an intervention in a, in a kind of a cultural, in a, in a corporate culture and have some success with it. But, you know, Mexico has these chronic uh, problems, many of which just derive from us. Implications of the underground economy beyond, put on your economist's hat, like rather yeah. than, you know, the larger problems of, the, of, of Mexico's political corruption and their, you know, the fact that they live because of the demand of their northern neighbor. Yeah. What, what, what are well, the, what, imagine, imagine a, imagine a perfectly functioning um, government. What are the implications of underground economies and having cash economies and that comparison with Sweden, which is cashless? Well, you end up with a lot of people who are living off uh, clever chic chicanery or the thwarting thereof, uh, as Thorstein Devlin calls it, um, you know, a sort of unproductive enterprise. And uh, they spend a lot of time hiding the books, double books, and uh, inventing stories about what's really going on. Uh, you know, they're not necessarily inventing uh, uh, health-giving new technologies. They're kind of engaged in subterfuge. So, you know, there's that whole distortion and sort of diversion of productive yeah, energies. Yeah. I mean, I imagine the, the, the cartel's financial managers are pretty talented people. They're moving money around the planet and they're hiding it in various forms and they have to stay up with the latest uh, money laundering uh, tools and techniques. And that's, you know, sort of, they're smart people. Um, but what else could they be doing? I mean, there's many things that they prefer to be doing, probably. Yeah. It's, and it can't be, as we see in Narcos, you know, people are running, living on the run. Um, in many cases, there, you know, there's all kinds of violence and uh, fear and anxiety. And I think the major, uh, major uh, problem is uh, uh, is metaphysical. You know, it's sort of a question of what what the hell are you doing with your life? You know, what, why this? <laughs> I mean, that was, that was the thing. I could not finish watching Mar Nar Narcos because after a certain point, it got to be okay. You know, sort of one more episode about uh you know people wasting their lives on this you know sort of pseudo wealth um but i i think the other thing about mexico is that it has uh, uh you know be, by by virtue of uh having everything uh, a large chunk of the of the economy off the books and not measured it has a hard time really understanding where it stands in terms mm. of investments Mm. In terms of you know the the overall incomes that people are making, I mean, how well are they doing? Yeah, uh, and so it's 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 very hard to uh, you know to know <laughs> kind of how the existing funds what, should be distributed. All the data is skewed.
it, it's 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 a mystery. You, you yeah. can't you know measure anything. So yeah, um, I th- I think that the, you know there's uh, the good news is that they have enormous potential and it's very talented people and many of those people are working in the united states so we know that yeah no i'm I'm extremely extremely bullish on mexico i think there's no reason why they can't become a they'll never be well you never say never they unlikely to ever be the economic superpower but they can there's no reason why they can't be a top five contender they have the biggest the, the biggest consumers in the world to their north they themselves have the perfect geography for agriculture and for manufacturing. They've got the two popular oceans as their coastlines, nice deep harbors. Um, like there's the 150 million people to work with, you know, a terrific culture that, that rewards and values hard work. Like they're, uh, they have quite the, they have quite the run sheet for, for reasons to be bullish for them. The one thing is just that they, they're also at the border from the hungry northern neighbor, and they want to snort a lot of cocaine and take a lot of fentanyl. And as long as demand yeah, for they, these drugs exists, that, that, that right. scourge they, of Mexico is not going to be fixed. They have, in a sense, uh, too easy a time selling us this, uh, these poisons. And, no, but it's uh, so few of them that sell that that sell it. That, that's the problem. If I'd be, yeah, I'd be more okay with it if at least like 20, 30% of the economy could contribute. It's like a handful yeah. of people in a handful of towns. Yeah. And there's in their spare time. Well, yeah. the other, the other thing is that, um, you know, I, I think going forward, we have to become increasingly aware of, uh, you know, climate issues and, uh, trying to de-emphasize the sheer kind of growth statistics that we've we've focused on in the past i think from that standpoint mexico has a you know enormous uh potential to, to generate power and uh you know through solar wind and geothermal uh it, it's relied especially probably probably too heavily on oil but if it becomes a you know an energy producer again using these other uh sustainable technologies i think you know um that's an alternative future that they, I hope that they're exploring. It's not clear that the, the drug industry is going to be that interested in it, but uh, maybe there's some talent there that can apply itself to, to solar power. And yeah. Sort of just growing this is uh, this is plants. this is a question I asked James Robinson, co-author of Why Nations Fail. Um, and since you're also, you know, a Harvard economist, McKinsey chief economist, I'd love to see what your take is on this as well. Um, when it comes to the drug trade, I said my, I don't know what you would say. What, what I said was, is that demand here is a stronger force than supply. You know, if they both have a measurement of one, the demand one is going to win every single time because implicitly it actually has a much higher uh, value, which is just to say that no matter what you try to do to stop this, the, the supply in the drug trade, which is, criminalize the cartels further criminalize the um the the cocoa leaf farmers down in the amazon or criminalize the people in america who are taking it rather um no matter what you try to do to stop that supply they're all because the demand is a stronger force they're always going to figure out a way to circumvent it and truly the one way to stop it is to reduce the demand right Hmm. or to equalize Well, I, i don't necessarily agree with that i think that um you know, let's take the opium market. And Afghanistan is probably, you know, 90% of the world's opium supply. 
um, various times it's enriched everybody there, including the Taliban. But um, it turns out, you know, the United States uh, never tried this. I ran it up the flagpole several times, but they couldn't get their head around it. Um, you know, Afghanistan uh, opium supply, basically the entire Farmgate value of the crop was uh, about, uh, last time I looked, it was about a billion to $2 billion. So the United States could have bought up the entire opium supply in Afghanistan um, and used uh, policing powers to curtail alternative sources of supply or residual, but basically uh, cr produce a huge legal uh, painkiller industry um, that would have, you know, been an alternative to Oxycontin and probably a healthier one. Um, and, you know, that would have entailed monopolizing, having, you know, the U.S. government become a monopolist of uh, opium production, which was a little bit far for, I think, the U.S. authorities to accept as a policy alternative. But it was state action. It was, would have worked. But because uh, demand, what I'm suggesting is because demand is a stronger force than supply, that example of an intervention on the supply side would have been circumvented by just a, you know, whether it's the Taliban or just a couple of more rural villages in Afghanistan going off and creating their own um, supply elsewhere and therefore feeding whatever the more local demand is. I mean, I think it's, it's not just all, the United States know, that is having yeah. opium as it is also the case. It's not just the United States having cocaine. This is also Europe yeah, and Australia and Asia. Yeah, maybe. I mean, prohibition is not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about developing a competitive source of demand mm. and uh, a legal one that could generate jobs in the above ground economy. Uh, and so whether or not, you know, the supply would have uh, shifted elsewhere and adjusted, that, that's an interesting empirical question. I'm saying as a first, uh, first hypothesis, uh, the existing policies were not working, you know, suppressing the trade wasn't working. Yeah. Uh, trying to get people to stop taking the stuff wasn't working. And so the idea that we would, you know, sort of maybe do something productive with it and get people uh, employed producing something else. Well, you know, it was something we could uh, have tried. Now, would that have been, uh, you know, would that have fixed people's appetites for drugs? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if you have stable work and you have uh, uh, more employment, whether that, uh, that probably helps, you know, deal with the demand for drugs. We don't, we don't observe, uh, you know, unlimited demand for illegal drugs. You know, there are a lot mm. of people who mm. never take illegal drugs. You know, we, we're, we're, we're basically left with sort of a, a menu of, you know, imperfect policies. Um, this one of monopolization and creating a legal sector industry, which is an alternative outlet for the opium and then buying up is, you know, basically saying you have to sell it to us. Uh, and if you don't, we'll, we'll deploy all of our law enforcement efforts to hunt you down. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's, it's kind of hard to hide all the opium production. Um, but um, anyway, that, that was my, uh, I guess, rejoinder. I don't, I don't know about, uh, um, sort of been done with you know other drugs and trying to get people 
uh, off uh, cocaine. It's not really a, or you know other drugs that I've. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've a a about, drug has I, to be. I, I think you know there, there's a there's a lot of experience that suggests that the legalization of of uh, things like marijuana in Colorado and and now New York, uh, you know, is problematic for the communities that are going down that path. Um, you know, there are a lot of critics of, of purely legalization that are suggesting yeah. that it yeah, creates certainly. a lot of a lot of problems if you don't have medical care to provide for people. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if the answer would be just pure legalization, but I, I just make the point yeah. taking into account the fact that supply side intervention, for example, like salting giant swathes of the amazon because this is where the cocoa leaf was originally planted yeah thinking, no that's well, ridiculous let's just stop the production there and then it'll be yeah. fine the next step you know intervening yeah. on uh, the flows into mexico failure intervening in the yeah. cartels of mexico obvious failure even if yeah. you succeed in bringing down a cartel there's a vacuum that someone's just going to come and up the violence and up right. the, the 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 depravity and just fill that yeah. gap because ultimately, so I think on the balance, demand if the, still if, goes north, and um, let's let's also now tie into this, uh, like the the talk of the issue of drugs or criminal organizations, tie into it your work and the work of Tax Justice Network, and make the point that it is tax secrecy and tax evasion and tax havens that allows the scale of these organizations. Because if the Sinaloa cartel couldn't hide billions and billions of us dollars through a couple of trusts in a jersey bank then they wouldn't have the means to 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 scale to the to the to the heights that they do and that also is a huge massive component that isn't recognized when it comes to the criminal organizations tax evasion makes i think that's i think that's absolutely true money laundering is a national security problem it's not just a drug yeah 100 uh, it, it is um you know, and it's not just offshore havens that are facilitating. I mean, a lot of the money now is flowing onshore. Uh, one of the biggest uh, loopholes is, you know, the secrecy of U.S. real estate uh, ownership. You know, there's no um, registry of uh, beneficial ownership of real estate in the United States. Uh, you know, companies and trusts, uh, there's still no, you know, it's, it's as secret to have a a Florida corporation as it is to have, uh, you know, a Jersey Isle corporation. So, you know, there's a lot more that we should be aware of here, but a lot of the, uh, the drug money has, uh, has been flowing into your, or kleptocratic money in general has been flowing right into, um, into the U S real estate market. It's kind of the new, now that we have more reporting on banks and bank accounts since the 1990s, uh, People have started to use uh, the real estate and, and to a tremendous uh, degree. I mean, I just recently did a study of uh, an island off the coast of Florida called Fisher Island, which is, uh, you know, just near Miami. And uh, for the last 20 years, it's been used as kind of a laundromat uh, for, you know, to crooks from Eastern Europe who turned up and bought and sold houses and properties there and millions of dollars. Well, that kind of behavior is completely um, non-transparent. Uh, Florida in many ways is a financial secrecy jurisdiction when it comes to real estate transactions. So, 
you know, undoubtedly there's drug money in there in Florida. Florida has always been, they call it the capital of Venezuela. Um, <laughs> Miami is the capital of Venezuela. But, you know, people don't want to invest their money in Panama. It's a tiny place. You know, they mm. want to have a, you know, real economy with real laws, <laughs> protection. If, you know, people go after you, you can get, you know, you can actually count on an independent judiciary. That's hard to do in Panama. But uh, so I, I think that the irony is that we've created a, a, a sort of a, a split level system in which first world countries, let's take Germany, for example. Germany is a widely regarded as uh, a rule following, you know, clean Western organization, you know, sort of civilization to, with courts and you know, elections and, and human rights. Um, but it's also one of the key money laundering destinations in Europe. Uh, the Italian, uh, you know, various Italian mafias, uh, Hezbollah, uh, you know, like to invest in Hamburg. Uh, you know, why is that? Well, nobody thinks of, of Hamburg as being a destination for drug money, but in fact it is. Mm. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, ironies here, sort of, uh, the fact uh, Western banks and law firms and accounting firms have created this infrastructure, uh, it's now coming back to haunt us in the way that, you know, a lot of the criminal activity in the world that's been mounting, globalization of organized crime, uh, it, you know, basically didn't exist when I started studying this stuff. It was, you know, sort of localized or national. Now it's become truly transnational. So you see... Yep criminal gangs moving across borders, influencing elections, yep. hacking elections. And, uh, you know, it, and a huge part of it is because they have access to the, uh, financial secrecy, which means they can maintain resources to use them as they see fit. And as we started with it, it, it makes, it scales criminal organizations higher than they would be otherwise. And in the worst cases, just to see how this actually manifests in real life and goes yeah. beyond, you know, the buy and sell of a drug, right? Mm -hmm. It moves right. into human trafficking, right? It moves into gangsterism. Like it moves into um, other, it moves into different levels of crime, right? Um, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, arms be... traffic, for example, global arms trade mm -hmm. is, is enormous. These days we have, um, all kinds of bad actors able to access, uh, you know, pretty serious weapons. Uh, and the, um, in many ways, the drug trafficking was the first installment of global organized crime. But I mean, now there's just, you know, theft of intellectual property, the hacking that's going on, the you know, serious sort of the big investments that organized crime is making on the margins of, not in drugs. Those are fairly mature markets. You know, they're mm -hmm. looking at much larger, you know, the ability to, to steal an entire um, company's, uh, you know, sort of customer list. And uh, these, these are on the margin of the real, you know, source. If you're in the criminal community these days, must be pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm, that's true. Um, I want to, I want to change the, the subject a little bit. Um, Similar to the story of Balbina, 
the hydro dam, where that is just simply a case of a couple of key actors making boatloads of money by um, pretending to build this uh, public infrastructure. Could you comment on debt trap diplomacy and the idea of a state actually doing this? For example, China investing a lot of money into some infrastructure project in Pakistan whose actual productivity never really matters to them because they just know that when Pakistan can't repay the, the loan, instead China will just say, don't worry about it, just let us have ownership of this area and we'll forgive the loan. The debt trap diplomacy idea. C could you comment on that? Well, this is a model that China has uh, been pursuing in some places, you know, sort of, um, I'm not sure to what extent it's, it's widespread. I've seen that uh, allegations about that kind of thing going on in Zimbabwe with respect to the diamond mines in Zimbabwe and also in Angola where China has made some investments. Uh, they, they like to have kind of vertically integrated uh, enterprises. They've been buying up uh, trucking companies in South Africa. Recently. It, it's it's uh, happening all along the new Silk Road for the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, yeah. Sri Lanka, Pakistan, all through. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. It sort of like reminds me of, uh, you know, when Walt Disney built Disney World uh, in Florida, <clears throat> he made a point of hiring Paul Halliwell, who we talked about before, to buy up all the properties around Disney World. Because when he built uh, Disney World and Disneyland in Los Angeles, he saw he left a lot of money on the table because he didn't buy up all these uh, these. Um, adjacent properties and you know they appreciate it in value so mm. i think china is doing the same thing with front companies around the belts and roads initiative and they're probably not so concerned about the immediate profitability of some of the investments they're making they're looking at these long-term kind of relationships that they're building and they're you know sort of cultivating a local clientele who are you know going to be beholden to them and and, and, and favoring them. I, I do think that uh, China has a certain amount of uh, uh, cer certain disadvantages in this, in this game that they're trying to play. Um, and, uh, you know, we should probably be paying attention to those uh, disadvantages at some level. But, um, yeah, there's no question that they're, they're, you know, for example, China has embarked on building something like 350 coal plants outside of China. I mean, so the last thing in the world we need right now are more coal plants. And yet China has taken, undertaken the, the, the goal of providing uh, its development uh, partners um, with coal plants, you know, Egypt and uh, Kenya. Um, so these are, this is a, you know, sort of, very questionable kind of investment that China is making that's hard to justify from the standpoint of the climate or impact on climate or even the profitability of the plant. plant. But, you know, China has the technology for coal plants because that's what they, you know, they know. Mm. Um, so but, um, that, that, that. What do you make of the use of foreign aid today? Uh, do you see it as a force for good or bad? Well, first of all, it's a rounding error. Um, if you take the total volume of remittances that are sent by very poor people from developing country back to their home countries, 
It's on the order of $700 billion a year. Billion? Uh, billion dollars a year. Wow, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. To, uh, you know, uh, uh, in comparison, the, the entire first world foreign aid budget is somewhere in the north, uh, in the area of 130 to $140 billion. A mm. year. And I guess those remittances payments are going to be allocated much more efficiently than foreign aid. Well, I, yeah, there are micropayments, 100 to $200 a month. Mm-hmm. And they're going to places like Haiti that are very, very poor. The Philippines is a good example of a re- big remittance recipient. Mm-hmm. One-fifth of all Filipino workers are abroad. Uh, you know, Many in Australia. Guatemala. Yeah. And, you know, we have Guatemala. You know, a lot of the people who are going over the border in Texas are are doing so not because they love Texas, but they want to send money back to support relatives in, in their impoverished neighborhoods. So the failure of development has created these immigration flows, which has uh, driven up the remittance flows. And that's another form of capital flight, human capital flight. Um, oddly enough, those people are paying taxes. <coughs> the taxes they're paying are in the form of uh, private rents that they're paying to players like Western Union and uh, the bank cartels that partner with Western Union, sort of on the order of, well, it it varies by country, but in the case of Mexico, it's about 5% of the the $100 that we send to Mexico gets creamed off by the cartel. Like, you know, Citibank is a big player in that. Um, But in the case of Haiti, after you account for the foreign exchange charge you have to send in gourd and then it has to be converted to dollars um it's more like 10 to 15 percent so remittances i would say is a bigger issue for developing countries than foreign aid if you eliminated the charges on remittances the sort of the excess charges on remittance made it more like one to two percent you would save at least half of the the equivalent of half of the foreign aid budget um, that would be going directly to the poor in these countries. Uh, that's a really, really cool way of looking at it. Um, although then wouldn't it just then using the remittances loophole would become a way that people would, uh, would take advantage of that by transacting money abroad as well. I mean, well, I mean, these are second order problems. Yeah, they're always going to be second order. Regulating these thing. things. One of the the barriers to getting into the remittance business is the uh, money laundering legislation. It's very mm. expensive to become a bank. Um, and so there's a trade-off here. We have to balance these different yeah. issues. But I think my balance would be in favor of the poor because we've been given tens of billion dollars a year to Western Union uh, <laughs> just you know, for, transact- for decades yeah. just because they're a cartel. Yeah. I mean, in Haiti, we have you know a great example. We have six banks in Haiti that dominate the remittance market. Their par- partner is Western Union. Um, they, you know, I went with the World Bank to Haiti, you know, three years ago uh, with a million dollars. We, we had a million dollar offer to change the remittance market. And the finance minister refused it. Why? He makes uh, a boatload of money. <laughs> his friends in the banks. Yeah. Uh, Bill Gates. Um, after the earthquake in 2010, he had a, a, a great rush of altruism, and he decided he would solve the remittance problem in Haiti. 
and he put up uh, $8.5 million with uh, Digicel, the largest uh, tele telecom provider in, in Haiti. Uh, and they designed a, uh, an e-wallet that would go on people's cell phones. And, uh, you know, if you offer people $25 of free money on a cell phone, they will take it. However, uh, after that ran out, uh, they had, uh, Bill Gates and, uh, and his foundation had, had done one thing, which was a mistake, which was, uh, I don't know how much you, you've dealt with Microsoft over the years, but, you know, they are not noted for paying a whole lot of attention to, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the end users, as they call us. Um, in terms of designing features in their software. Well, this is a perfect example. They didn't talk to a single Haitian when they designed this e-wallet. And the Haitians couldn't use the wallets to buy anything because none of the merchants could accept it. So they went back to using cash after spending, you know, eight, eight and a half million dollars on this application. Um, you know, any, any Haitian could have only a them, smart person could do something so stupid. That's right. That's right. He had to be Gates to be that stupid. That, um, you know, is a glaring example of, of sort of Western uh, arrogance. I think. Mm. I mean, also not to throw McKinsey under the bus, we'll throw BCG instead, but I mean, no. there would have been some sort of uh, Western consultancy firm involved in that. Well, there probably was. I don't know if they were. They probably also had some locals involved. And you know, Digicel was the Digicel mm. is this interesting company in the Caribbean. It has a big presence, and it's owned by an Irish guy. I don't know how that happened. He's a good friend of Bill Clinton's, and you know they have the dominant cell phone service in Haiti mm. and elsewhere. Uh, but anyway, they they basically were very generous with their cell phones and. And all you know, it's nothing to deny that they gave the money. It's just that they didn't use it very well, and they had this attitude. This this question cuts, I think, you know, really to the to the heart of your work, Tax Justice Network work, mm -hmm. Nick Shackson's work, and it really is the ethics of tax evasion. Because I've tried, I've tried thinking about this myself. Um, I feel I don't earn a lot of money, right? But I, if I did, I know that there is a very, very, very strong part of me that would want to say, I don't want to give 50, 60% of my money to this Swedish government who I know is not going to allocate it according to my demands, n not even to society's demands. It is largely going to be wasted. And I can accept some inefficiency in the system, but there is, I think, an egregious amount of inefficiency in how, say, the Swedish state allocates their funds, let and they're one of the best in the world at doing it, which is just another way of saying, think, well, thinking about the ethics of tax evasion, as an individual, I have this overwhelming sense of I want to minimize as much as I possibly can the tax that I'm going to pay to the local government. So yeah. there's that question, the ethics there on the individual level, and then there is the ethics on the corporation level. This is now um, an organization who, let's take Amazon as an example, they were shopping around for their second headquarters. And it is actually a very good thing for your city. I mean, you would say on net 
you know, with all else being equal, it's a good thing for your city for Amazon to come in because it's going to provide a lot of jobs, right? Providing a lot of jobs has a lot of down order effects, which are good for a local economy or a broader economy. And the trade-off is, well, we're not going to tax you as much because it's like the, you know, it's the discount for you coming into our city, whatever. There's that level. And then there is where like what Apple does, where they recognize their profits, which is just blatantly tax evasion. Uh, there is no ethical conundrum for this one. You know, I, I buy an iPhone in Australia, yet for some reason that profit isn't recognized in Australia. It's recognized in Dublin because <laughs> they're not going to tax their profits yeah. as highly. So could you, for me, look at those three individual uh, examples, me as an income individual, me as a big multinational shopping around for a good place to put 10,000 workers, and then me as a big multinational just dodging all of my profitable taxes, the ethics yeah. of it. Sure. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's a, let's break it down this way. First of all, these companies that we're talking about, in many cases, we also see them being uh, monopolies or uh, having market power that's transnational. Uh, they have been able to use this haven system to sort of game the system and to shift their intellectual property, for example, to places where they are citizens of nowhere for tax purposes. So they have, you know, Apple for a long time was operating this subsidiary in Ireland that wasn't considered an Irish company because it had its management in California. It wasn't considered a, a U.S. company. Uh, because it was uh, basically, from the U.S. standpoint, incorporated in Ireland. So it was uh, not taxed anywhere. Uh, you know, the famous exchange between Senator and uh, the, uh, the Apple uh, uh, CFO uh, saying, where, is, where are you guys resident for taxes? He said, well, actually, we're not resident anywhere for tax purposes. Um, and they were transferring their intellectual property to this Irish uh, entity and uh, you know, paying themselves royalties to that company. And this uh, is very clearly unethical. Like there's no debate. Tax free. Yeah. Well, from their standpoint, they, they take a narrow reading of what their fiduciary stand, uh, responsibility is to shareholders. And there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley, you know, as enlightened as they are, they basically are more or less libertarians when it comes to the tax code. They say, whatever, Whatever works, whatever I can get it with, get away with, I will make better decisions about what to do with my money than Washington will. Um, and so that's kind of a mentality that you have. Mm. Um, you know, they're not really acknowledging the fact that the entire technology industry in the United States was basically uh, built on the backs of government uh, uh, enterprise, and that they've gotten enormous, not only in software industry but also in the pharmaceutical industry, enormous uh, intellectual. Uh, property as a result of government subsidies. But anyway, that aside, I think the fundamental issue that you're on to is one that I've been after the tax justice movement to tackle for some time. I think we have some increasing experience that the taxes that are dedicated to specific uses that people can identify as valuable mm. are more likely to be popular and to deserve respect uh, than, um, you know, just the general revenue things that go into uh, the atmosphere. Yeah, and yeah. people are skeptical about government and they've seen government being mismanaged in various ways, uh, partly because of these interest groups that have their way with government and regulation. Um, but, um, you know, let's take the example of what to do about the carbon uh, emission. 
if we had a carbon dividend that was not just a carbon tax, uh, let's call it a carbon dividend, and we dedicate the revenue from that to giving ordinary people basically a royalty based on the fact that they own the atmosphere. We all own part of the air that's being used and we have a claim on it. Then you'd see most people would actually get money back. And, uh, you know, even after paying the cost of their fossil fuels. Uh, on the other hand, gas prices would be higher and oil prices would be higher. Coal prices would certainly be higher. And there would be, uh, you know, this would, we would be pricing this otherwise free resource. We could tax us similarly, we could charge uh, monopolies uh, a kind of rent, recognizing that their pricing behavior is a form of taxation, given the fact that there is no uh, easy alternative to you know, buying some of the goods and services that a company like Apple sells. It's now a virtual uh, you know, sort of oligopoly, certainly. Um, so, you know, the rents that they're extracting from everyone for that benefit is, is, you know, a form of taxation. We should be able to expect something back for that and limit the monopoly power. So I think the latest generation of Nick Shaxson's work, my work is focusing on what to do about monopoly power. That's, I think, an important new theme. But there's no substitute for having citizens actually involved in government and making sure that they are taking their role as citizens seriously. So when it comes to making sure that uh, local government is managed carefully and uh, state government is managed carefully, and you know, they, 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 this is an ongoing problem. And you know, a lot of people just don't take it that seriously. They don't see it as something that they need to be involved in. Someone else is gonna take care of making sure the government is run well or is managed. It's gonna look over the shoulder of the school board. You know, I live in a community in Sag Harbor, New York, where the average student per year cost of the 990 students we have in the high school is something like $45,000 for public school. There are other communities in the same state where it's more like 5,000. Right. Probably the average is 8,000. But because of the way we fund education in this country, we're spending uh, in Sag Harbor, um, you know, the, and the average student is going to school about 160 days a year. And so that breaks down to about $200 an hour per student for public education. I would gladly volunteer to take on five students and educate them to a Harvard level if they would allow me to do that. You know? mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's just an example of sort of uh, misspending. Uh, it's something that can – it's only citizens who get involved in understanding this stuff, and it's, and it's a lot of work. You know, they say the problem with socialism, it takes too many nights and weekends, you know, that's too many meetings, the case. too many damn meetings. Yeah. And so you can't really, I mean, there's no, you know, at some level, you just want to say, come on, guys, let's just, you know, stop blaming uh, the tax evaders. There are people out there who are aggressive tax evaders and companies that are evading like crazy. And then there are the sort of mom and pop people who say, if I don't, give it to the government it's you know it's they're not going to miss it and uh, i'll have better uses for it than than they will because look at these you know the average cop in sag harbor gets one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year 
<laughs> so that's a lot of money for a that's a well compensated cop you know he makes more than a lot of uh, scandinavian ceos the last uh the last ad administrator the last uh chief of police in southampton village about 10 miles from me uh just retired with a million dollar pension so you know there's there's this is corruption of, though right this isn't like this is, i mean this isn't a missile this is by People and this is why people insiders. look at the individual taxable income and say, I, I just don't agree that this man should have a million dollar pension. I'm going to do my best to not give you money so you can give a million dollar pension. You know, it's, yeah, well, it feeds on itself and I don't see an easy solution to it, but it starts at the top. Mm. It starts with having political leaders who are willing and able to say, you know, to some extent, Joe Biden has been doing this, saying that tax, this is the first president we've had who's talked about tax justice. Um, he's, his spending plan and his tax plan are in trouble right now in Congress because he, he only has 50 senators out of 100. And, you know, one of them is saying, I'm not going to go along with this. But, and it's sort of 11 Democrats out of the 220 in Congress that are, you know, very conservative and they don't want to pass his bill. But he is speaking out for the first time in decades about tax justice, about the fairness of, you know, the super rich having $7 billion, $7 trillion more of wealth than they did before the pandemic. Um, you know, it, it's just a question of educating the public about what's going on mm -hmm. and uh, getting them to, you know, put down the fork and get so to be involved. Let's uh, let's do Russia, Jim. There was uh, you wanted to speak about Russia. I'm very excited to hear what your uh, where you want to take that. Yeah, well, I think that uh, Russia is a great story of a missed opportunity because at the end of the '90s, uh, we had Putin restore the power, and ten years before that, we had this enormous period of the triumph of the West and liberalism was reigning and the fall of the wall everywhere but China, by the way. We, we welcomed uh, the Chinese dictatorship. But, um, you know, basically in the case of Russia, we, uh, we made this uh, sort of Faustian bargain with very corrupt uh, elements in Russia. Um, in the mid nineties. And I was there for this and I saw it and I was getting stories from people about the enormous transfers of wealth that were going on to this handful of people who are basically buying up uh, the state sector. They privatized something like 150,000 state-owned companies that the Soviet government had, you know, spent 70 years developing on the backs of the Russian people. Uh, for a grand total of $9.8 billion. That's it. And uh, the oligarchs who came out of that period are still running the place and still very influential, although Putin, you know, is controlling a lot of, the, uh, a lot of them behind the scenes. So I think I, I look at that period as uh, one of enormous long-term impact and, and sort of a real failure of our... Uh, you know, sort of intervention there and contrast it with the Philippines where we, and, and Japan, you know, the, the, the case of MacArthur having a successful uh, intervention. But Russia has turned out to haunt us, basically. They're, 
uh, Putin is now being very influential all over Africa. He's been intervening in South Africa. He's been intervening. You know, he tried to bribe the president of South Africa, Zuma, to build eight nuclear power plants that they didn't need. Um, we've, we've had, uh, you know, instances of his interfering in, uh, you know, elections around the planet, including our own Trump case. And I think, you know, the, Putin is just, uh, you know, a byproduct of this failed transition to democracy uh, in, in Russia back in the, in the 1990s. I think that's the main theme. And a similar kind of failed transition to democracy in China that we never even got off the ground. So, uh, I've looked at uh, measures of capital flight from Russia and China, and those were by far, you know, in the modern era, the modern version of this uh, capital flight is that it has continued. Uh, and uh, most recently for during the period from 2012 to 2018, those, those are record years for flight capital from Russia and from China. It's quieted down a bit now lately, but um, you know, no question that these kleptocracies are equally capable of, of, of feeding the, the global beast. You say it was a big opportunity missed to transition into democracy. I think um, there are many cases throughout the world, mostly in the Middle East, some Asian as well, that suggests that perhaps there is too much cultural baggage sometimes for a democratic model to just simply be transitioned into China, especially, but also Russia. Yeah. I mean, they went from the czars where the leader of the state was literally a demigod to the Soviet Union, where any, where, where there was just zero trust in the state, zero, 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 zero trust yeah. in the state. Yeah. One cannot simply transition into then a democracy where they put faith in the state. Um, in terms of the, the, the rise of the oligarchic wealth, uh, I read Bill Browder's book, the former mm -hmm. CEO of Hermitage Capital. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or his work. Yes, I am. I know Browder. Oh, you do? Well, that's fantastic. Well, I just a, thought he, his book was amazing. You know, he's a good example of a, I would characterize him as kind of a parasite who, you know, sort of was quite happy to profit from the system while he, he could. And then he upset some people and he got on the wrong side. He had, his lawyer was murdered and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So he's now the big op opponent of Putin. But I think it, it, it's sort of like, um, you know, depending on the time of day and, you know, the place, the leopard has different spots. But Sure, um, sure. That, that yeah, was I don't actually take anything away from Bill Browder. He's I've, I've met with him in London. He, you know, he's a very kind of quiet guy. Um, he undoubtedly has done quite a bit of work to, you know, sort of do what he can to uh, expose Putin. But um, I think the bigger perspective is that it was people like Bill Browder who, at a certain point, were taking advantage of the Russian system instead of <clears> trying <throat> to see what we could do to support. Uh, a democratic transition. I do think it, it, it's too much to summarize in one or two sentences, but there were per, pretty clear uh, moments of decision that we made in the early 90s about whether to uh, contribute more assistance to uh, Democrats in, in Russia. And, uh, you know, my colleagues uh, who were involved there, you know, like Jeffrey Sachs, were you know, are pretty articulate about the the um, the failures of U.S. policy to really ante up and put up uh, kind of 
Marshall Plan type aid to facilitate that transaction. And we, mm. Clinton, both Clinton and Bush were concerned about being perceived as supporting communists. And, uh, you know, that was a, a bad, I think, mistake. In, in retrospect, it was a tiny down payment on what might have been. But on the, on the other basic thing, you know, my big point today is that we've seen the global haven industry. I think a summary kind of comment on this is that we've seen 50 years of exposés. We have a kind of, um, you know, I would say uh, uh, fatigue with exposés, you know, Panama Papers and the Bermuda Papers and all the, you know, Swiss Papers and the Gates. Um, Swiss gates. Um, you know, it's, it's a, um, what we're seeing now is democracy under threat all across the planet. We kind of assume that this neoliberal model of development in which everyone would, would have a thousand flowers blooming um, would pay off. And yet you see South Africa is under threat. Uh, yeah. Brazilian democracy is under threat. Brazil, certainly. We have uh, Kenya. The president is now trying to decide whether to run for a third term. Yeah. Their last election was hacked, not by Russians, but by Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nigeria. Struggling, you know, developing democracies. So, um, and then we have Biden's recent decision to retreat from Afghanistan, which, you know, I think was um, about as poorly handled as you could possibly imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would but, say uh, so. The, the, the thing is that democracy is under, un, under threat here as well. And all of these institutional problems that we've talked about um, have had a cumulative effect. Uh, they have failed. They have failed to uh, expand democracy anywhere. Uh, they have made it uh, more fragile. Mm. And uh, in every particular case, I mean, if I was going to write a sequel to Blood Bankers, I, I would write it about basically many of the same countries because in every one, they're struggling to yeah. maintain the democratic progress that they've made. Um, in some cases they've gone backwards like Venezuela and Nicaragua um, you know even uh, even Mexico I don't know what's going to happen in Iraq I can't believe it's going to be very positive but the uh, Philippines is certainly experiencing a regression Guatemala I can't travel to I can't travel to Honduras anymore uh, I can't go to Nicaragua I wouldn't want to try to go back to Venezuela. Brazil is inaccessible. Most of these countries that I wrote about no. are off limits. So that's for me the saddest part of this story. It's the the, the, the bitter ending. It's not just the the global haven industry and the rise of all that. It's like the the other side of it, which is you know, what's happened to these societies that we failed uh, to take care of. Well, Bill, we can't end on that sour note. Um, so I've got, <laughs> I've got two Jim. questions for you. The first <laughs> yeah. being, um, 
what is a country that you're extremely bullish on? These are questions I ask every guest, by the way. But what is a country you're extremely bullish on? Uh, I like South Africa. Uh, I also like Iceland. Um, depending on the day of the week, I like the United States. Uh, <laughs> I think we still have uh, enormous positive, positive contributions to the world. I mean, I think that we have uh, achieving our country is, is an ongoing struggle. We, we have, uh, you know, very deep rooted problems, but, uh, you know, we also have some great traditions to call on. But South Africa is a country that I, I've always enjoyed going to, and the people have wonderful uh, sense of uh, at their best, that, you know, of uh, South African as opposed to can't, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, non-racialism, which I, you know, I was talking about struggles at Amnesty that we had uh, recently with you know, that kind of ideology of, uh, you know, whites being racist intrinsically and, you know, that we have to, you know, separate into tribes. That's, at its best, South Africa has opposed that. The ANC has opposed that. Mandela opposed it. Um, and people on the, on the uh, ordinary people on the streets oppose it. They get along. They, they like each other. They they relate to each other very well. So that's a country that I, I think is a bellwether. It's if they stumble and go back into a kind of uh, a racial polarization or, you know, some kind of violent civil war, you know, that that'll be the signal for the rest of us that things are really getting serious. Mm. Um, um, and that's, oh, you go on. No, I was going to say, Iceland is a little country that's, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, you know, it's fun. It's just kind of, you know, always entertaining. Uh, the music is crazy. The, the glaciers are, you know, maybe they're melting, maybe they're not. I mean, it's like, you know, everyone should go there and just visit, see what it's like. But um, I've always found uh, Iceland kind of a positive experience. Anyway. Um, the final question, Jim, is uh, it's a bit of a fun one. It's got nothing to do with taxes or anything. Um, but it is, if you could witness a conversation which, or listen to a podcast between any two people, dead or alive from history, who would you mm. want to listen to? Oh, that's a... <laughs> uh, probably impossible question to answer, but I'll... I'll take a shot at it i'd love to hear um a conversation between uh, uh one of my favorite philosophers william james um and uh probably um you know one of the uh, more interesting um uh women on the planet <laughs> sort of ever uh, is a woman named uh, Mother Jones. Um, she lived to be uh, in her 80s. She was involved in every major civil rights struggle and, and social struggle from 
really the 1830s on. Uh, in America? In America. You know, she led the Colorado miners' strike and in her 80s, marched up the, the hill. I mean, there, there, you know, she had a profound, like, commitment to keeping on and struggling. Uh, William James was a philosopher with a pragmatist. He was really a, a very, um, I think, very positive force in, in, in American philosophy at a certain point in time and emphasizing just the, uh, the responsibility that we all have as citizens. I mean, he and John Dewey and others in that tradition, Richard Rorty, they're, they're remarkable, uh, pragmatic uh, American philosophers. And, and, you know, they have that uh, optimism that Mother Jones also had. So those are two that I would, I would single out. I love my friend Ralph Nader. I talk to him all the time, and he's uh, another force of nature, you know, who keeps mm -hmm. on in his late 80s, uh, you know, trying to make the world a better place. I'm interested in these people who manage through all of the incredible setbacks and difficulties that we face uh, to keep on putting their shoulder to the wheel. That's, yeah. that's really inspiring. What a beautiful note to end on. Good. Thank you so Good. much, Jim. That was a, it was a whirlwind of a chat. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, the most important podcast I ever did, probably, I had to then defer to a free account on Zoom, which was just so frustrating. Um, and because the and, and because we were recording on a free version of Zoom, it actually created a bit of anxiety for me during the chat because when you record in Zoom with a free profile, there is no backup happening anywhere. So you run the risk of losing everything, even if there's just a lost in internet connection, you know? Um, or when you stop recording, if your computer somehow just didn't manage to save this giant file. So it is very risky to record free on Zoom because there's no backup and um, it requires everything to go well. Whereas in my other um, podcast software that I use, it will automatically back up as you're recording and you could refresh the page 10 times and it would still have the recording up until that point. But anyway, it doesn't matter because we got it. We recorded close to four hours and I actually chopped a bit of it off, hopefully to create a little bit more of a sense of narrative. Um, but really it was just unreal speaking with this guy. His work is incredible and I have so much admiration for the investigative nature of the work that he was doing. This type of financial audit of international capital flight does such a good job at showing just how much corruption flows throughout all of the world, but then more specifically in some certain parts of the world. I realized while recording that it was too ambitious of a task to try and get the whole life story out in one podcast. I perhaps should have kept the confines narrow and focused on the scope of the book, but after I learned about his role as chief economist at McKinsey and all the rest, I got greedy and I guess I just really wanted to know more. So go and buy Blood Bankers. It will, in addition to the consumption of Treasure Island, really make you see the world differently and uh, also add a whole new flavor on what it is to actually handle billions and billions of dollars in foreign budgets and the rest. Because don't forget, aid is a giant part of this. And I really hope you enjoyed it. And um, unless you're incredibly masochistic, I suppose if you're still around to this point, you did enjoy it. But don't be shy. If you're still with me, throw five stars and a review into the podcast app you're listening from. And if you don't have a review functionality or you listen on some weird, obscure podcast app, open up Apple Podcasts and review it there, please. You 
Again, I cannot overstate how important that is for the discoverability of podcasts. And also, just finally, if you're interested in Nassim Taleb, I have a dedicated podcast to his work, the link to which you will find in the description. As well as you've been listening to this on the Geopolitics and Power feed, check out my main podcast, A Curious Worldview. And also the final thing, go to my website and subscribe to the newsletter if you're keen. Otherwise, just go and look at the website. Maybe there's something interesting on there. Who knows? Maybe there isn't, but hopefully there is. And wow, that's a long one. That's all from me. Take it easy, you absolute legends. Ciao.